Hey guys, it's Graham, wishing you a very happy Halloween. This is going to be a bit of a different episode for us as we're covering three different films. Initially, this was supposed to be three different episodes, but we decided to edit them together into one big Halloween special. First up is Killdozer. It's about a bulldozer that becomes possessed and goes on a rampage. Then it's Teenage Exorcist. It's really not what you think it is. Finally, we've got the 1980s classic Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. We hope you enjoy this extra big, extra special episode. And from everyone here at Death by Video, we wish you a very, very happy Halloween. Here's a movie that you never seen. The map is some ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles, there'll be tears. You won't watch a movie for about. Eight billion years, it's time for death by video. Time for death by video. And now the show will begin. And that was Killdozer. Killdozer. All right, so where do we begin with Killdozer? We begin. On an island 20 miles from Africa. 200 miles. Oh, 200 miles, right. Uh, if it was 20 miles away, they would have sent someone. Te- technically, we begin in outer space. Yes, right, where we see some great uh, early 70s um, uh, special effects of a meteorite heading, hurtling towards Earth. Meteorites, space junk, what have you. Exactly. You know, anything that would be in a Devo song. Yes. Um... So, and this is where we meet our hardy crew, who are made up of... Mac. Yep. Uh, we got, I guess the foreman is named Kelly. Yep. Uh, and then there's a guy named Chubb. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think we've got a Al or Hal. Did we figure that one out? Uh, we're looking it up. Al or Hal. He's, uh, yeah. And then we've got uh, Dutch. Mm-hmm. Dutch, who has a uh, like a, a picture of Veronica Lake, he's ripped out of a magazine that I guess he, uh, I don't know, uses James, for those yeah, lonely nights. James Way- Wainwright plays Dutch, um, and uh, Hal is actually that's Beltran. That's played. He's played by James A. Watson Jr. Neville Brand plays Chubb Foster. Uh, Carl Betts plays Dennis Holvig, and Robert Ulrich plays McCarthy or Mac, as we know him. Uh, and uh, Clint Walker plays Lloyd Kelly. And the film was directed by Jeremy London. Oh, so Kelly is his last name. Yeah, not ah. his first. Yeah, yeah. Which makes sense. You're on a, you know, you're on a, on a you want to be gruff and tough with the boys. You don't want to go going around like, let them know Kelly is your first name. It's your last name. Um, it's a Warburton drilling project mm-hmm. in somewhere in Africa. Somewhere off the coast. So uh, Jeremy London, the director, he actually has 95 credits on IMDb. Um... Scrolling back to see where he starts off. Uh, his first credit was he was directing episodes of Hogan's Heroes. He did a lot of TV. Tracks. TV. He did some Brady Bunch, Bob Newhart, Partridge Family, um, Love American Style. And then Kill Dozer is actually his first movie, and it was his, a TV movie. He then went on to go back to do stuff. He did Mon Pa, a TV movie. He did some, an episode of Happy Days, Mary Tyler Moore, um, Beretta. Switch, Kojak, The Six Million Dollar Man, a lot of TV I don't remember, um, Petroselli, um, Harry O. McNaughton's Daughter, The Bionic Woman, City of Angels, Policewoman, The Quest, 
Yeah, all TV Hawaii Five O Rockford Files. Uh, they did another uh, TV movie called The World of Darkness, which looks a little lurid. Which is about after a near-death experience from a vehicle accident, a sports writer finds that people in the after- afterlife are able to contact him and cryptically suggest that he helps someone they know. Uh, he did another TV movie called Cover Girls in 1977. Two beautiful fashion models work undercover as secret agents. Sounds great. Nice. He did Police Story, not the Jackie Chan movie, the TV series from in 1976. Uh, he did a lot more TV work. Another TV movie called Escapade, which is about two U.S. Secret Service agents are, who are lured on a bizarre search for their rookie partner who has mysteriously disappeared. Two secret agents are set out and... Oh, it's just the same... Uh, plot synopsis twice did a tv movie called the woman in white uh which is based on a novel by frank slaughter it's a miniseries about a beleaguered woman uh, beleaguered women doctors in a florida hospital um i'm guessing he did the the his probably his most uh well-known stuff because it was actually featured in uh kill bill volume two he did uh the tv movie shogun and the follow-up tv miniseries shogun uh both in 1980 um, Shogun, of course, is the story of an English navigator who becomes both a pawn and a player in the deadly political games in feudal Japan. I only know Shogun as a book that was on the bookcase of my parents' bookshelf. Yeah. Good old Richard Chamberlain plays... It was uh, a thick book, is what I remember. Yeah. Plays the uh, the hero Toshiro Mifune, who best known for... Hey, hey our boy, yeah. Yeah, from Yojimbo. Films. Yep. He, uh, he's in it as Lord Yoshi uh, Toragana. Um, actually, a lot of actual Japanese cast, which is like surprisingly uh, progressive. Good, progressive for 1980. Sadly, progressive for 1980. He he, he just does a lot of TV movie works, like he does The Gift of Life, uh, The Ordeal of Bill Carney. Ho- uh, then he starts doing some TV episodes again. He does Hotel, Ellis Island, uh, Magruder and Loud, Hollywood Beat, um, Dark Mansions, which is a TV movie from 1986. Um, he really was on this TV movie, tra- movie train. Dark Mansions is about a woman who is hired to write the history of a wealthy family. She stays at the family's estate in Oregon. She discovers that she strongly resembles a long-dead ancestor of the family. And fine things aren't what they seem. Um, yeah, just more and more TV movies. He finally does a, bills, an actual movie movie in 1987. He does the Burt Reynolds uh, and Liza Minnelli action uh, comedy <laughs> drama crime Rent-A-Cop, which is about when a call girl, Della, gets caught in the middle of a drug bust at a hotel where she was meeting a trick. She is held hostage by a robber that busted in on the drug agents and the drug dealers. Uh, she gets rescued by Vice Cop Church, who is accused of staging the aborted bust. Ex-ball player turned drug dealer Roger is tight with the corrupt Vice Cops and their superiors, and the fireworks start popping. It sounds all right, actually. Yeah, yeah, we, we might do that in the future. Uh, goes back to, to another TV movie called Daha is Death, uh, which I don't know what that is. On the 9th of November, 1983, two Australians, Kevin Barlow and Jeff Chambers, were arrested at Penang Airport in Malaysia carrying 179 grams of heroin, a crime which in Malaysia carries a mandatory sentence of death. Daha is Death, a.k.a. A Long Way From Home, is the true story of uh, their desperate attempt to, of Barbara Barlow's desperate attempt to save her son from the hangman's rope, a courageous effort that involved impassioned pleas to President Reagan, the British police ma- minister, and even the Pope. What's that Claire Danes movie? Uh, the Broke Down Palace. Broke Down Palace, yeah. And yeah. then there was that Anne H movie that came out around the same time, Return to Paradise. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. R.I.P. Anne H, by the way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he keeps doing these uh, TV movies, including 1991's Victim of Love, in which a psychiatrist and her patient are involved with the same man who may or may not be a murderer. Uh, then he does some other stuff, but he does a movie called a TV movie called Calendar Girl Cop Killer, the Bambi Bemernick story. <laughs> so I got to look up this. So the story of an attractive cop, Laurentia. An attractive ben- cop? Ben- I don't believe it. Bemernick, who in 1982 was sentenced to prison for killing her husband's ex-wife in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Cool. Uh, he did Labor of Love, the Arlette Schweitzer story. I don't even know what that is. He directed the TV movie that became the TV series, The Cosby Mysteries. So he also did I Spy Returns in 1994. A, uh, I actually saw that because uh, my dad was a big fan of I Spy in the 60s. Yeah, I vaguely remember this happening. Directed an episode of Diagnosis Murder. Directed an episode of Dream On in 1995. Oh, you had Dream On. Directed an episode of Chicago Hope. Um... Then did more TV movies, including Stolen Woman, Women, Captured Hearts, which is, let's read that one. In, 19, in 1868, Kansas, a Lakota Sioux warrior stubbornly refuses to free the two white women he kidnapped, triggering a war between his tribe and General Custer's rescuing troops. Um, does a lot more TV movies. There's one Christmas movie called I'll Be Home for Christmas in 1997. Directs 21 episodes of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Oh, hell yeah. Directs Take Me Home, the John Denver story in the year 2000. Did he do Homer Simpson, Portrait of an Ass Grabber? No. Starring Dennis Franz. He did the Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman TV movie, The Heart Within. He directed two episodes of JAG. He directed the TV movie Counter-Strike. I forgot about JAG. Yeah. Uh, And then his final thing was... Renzo Lamas, right? Yeah. Was the TV series What About Brian uh, in 2006... Uh, what about Brian? Of course, starring Barry Watson, Matthew Davis, and Rick Gomez. I don't know of who course, these people are. Of course, and uh, Rosanna Arquette. I wonder why she was listed so low. Anyways, so that was the director Jerry London of Killdozer. Sorry, I talked. We did. We didn't get into the plot. You don't know Barry Watson from Set the Son from Seventh Heaven, who's married to Natasha Gregson Wagner. No, no. Clearly, you do though. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're on this we're on this thing. We kind of meet all of our characters, and then uh, Mac is driving the D-Niner, which is the titular killdozer. Yes, and he's, uh, he's, he's running over things. He's like, all right, baby, destroy, and then yeah. he runs over like a World War II barracks. Yeah, where they talk about Veronica Lake, who, uh, who Dutch describes as, she was cool before it was even a word. That's, that was his line. Which is not true, Dutch. Cool's been a word for a while. Ah, it became a thing in the 50s, and she was a star in the 40s. So, da-da-da-da. It is one of the uh, ah. most enduring slang terms. Uh, yeah. Like, cool. It's never gone out of style. Never it's not gone like, out of style. It's not like yeah. <coughs> groovy. It's been cool. <laughs> it's not like groovy or radical or gnarly. Um, or, or bodacious. Or fab. I hate when people say fab. Just stop. Bodacious. Uh, I always remember that from the Teenage Mutant Tubular. Mutant. Yeah, tubular. Totally tubular. Sick. Yeah, sick is sick had a long life. Yeah, it's it's made a comeback mostly as like a parody of of a, a word of excitement. Like you, like when I use the term sick, it's like kind of a joke. But cool, you can't you can't even say that ironically. It's yeah, just, it is. What That's it is. cool. I mean, you, you yeah, can, okay, but you, you have to be sarcastic. You have to it. work with it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah. So they found. So uh, Mac is riding the killdozer. 
And then he collides with said space rock from the opening. And he's like, oh, that's weird. And Kel- oh, actually, no. Um, he he is he's out of the uh, killdozer. Kelly actually is behind the controls. Not initially. No. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. He, he hits it, and then he's like, he "There's stops. a rock here." Yeah, and he's like, "It's a weird rock." And Kelly's like, "Well, I guess it's gonna have to move." Uh, and so Kelly gets behind the wheel, and this, and he goes up, and he hits the rock, and this is when we see a eerie, glowing blue light transfer itself from the rock to the killdozer, and it also somehow causes uh mac to be burned like blinds and burns him yeah he's just like overwhelmed by this blue light and he falls over and it's immediately like a uh, first aid uh sos situation yeah and so they go back to their their tents where they're like setting up the we should also explain they're there to like clear a path to like build roads and uh establish a drilling something some, some sort of drilling we assume oil or natural resources or or gold, or who knows what, or diamond mine. We don't know, but it's like they're there from an American company to uh, to drill this this tiny island that's only six miles long, two hundred kilometers off the two hundred miles off the coast of Africa, um, which is an easy way to set something in Africa, but without casting any black people. Except there is one black person, Hal. Yes, he's there. Yep. So all the men are gathered in the tent. They're all watching Mac die or Mac die. <laughs> they're not. They're holding his hand. They're like they're thinking he's gonna pull through. I mean, yeah. And they all kind of blame Kelly because Kelly is a bit of a hard ass. And Mac's saying some wild stuff. Yeah. Um, but then Mac wants to speak to Kelly alone, and that's when he explains like the blue light, and Kelly's like, "You're crazy. You're out of your head. Just get some sleep." Yeah. And then he just dies. And Mac dies right in front of Kelly, and Kelly's yeah, he like, has, "He's like a he has a convulsion or something, yeah. and then he dies." Yeah, he's like, "All right, let's go bury him," and then uh, then we get some, a lot of work to do tomorrow. Yeah, they're all having like um, they're all having a drink for Mac. They're kind of getting all teary eyed and stuff. And Kelly comes in, and they're like, "Kelly, we're having a drink for Mac. Here you go." And booze is yeah. There he goes. The bar's closed. <laughs> yeah, he Cock takes the, the bottle. Booze, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense because on those work sites, you're not supposed to have alcohol because alcohol oh, sure. can lead to alcohol plus boredness, boredness and at the, and no women leads to destruction. Well, they're even they're even telling him, though, like nobody's going to like our, our, our friend just died and mm-hmm. we're all they were all pretty fond of him. Uh, he has a whole stack of sci-fi novels that one guy's going through. Yeah, but the and thing... they're like, Kelly, yeah, nobody's going to write you up for this. Just have a drink. But Kelly is no nonsense. He's like, we got to be up early tomorrow. Yeah, and the reason why uh, this also establishes that because Dennis drops it that like Kelly had some issues with his former employer, and if the only way he can like kind of save his job is if this this um, preparing for the drilling goes well. Um, also, uh, I forget. I think just before this, Kelly went out to inspect the killdozer. I think it's just after this. Just okay, maybe it's just after yeah. this, and it just uh, he tries to guess get it in gear, and it makes all sorts of spacey computer noises. Yeah, and it kind of goes a little haywire, but he cuts the the gas line and starts spewing gas, and it's just about to hit him and kill him, but it runs out of gas, and so the next day he has Chubb, who is the mechanic, I assume for the for the island, uh, for the for the dig site, basically like go through it, check it all out to make sure that it's fine, that there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and well, actually, the killdozer uh, that night before before the morning happens. I've got it all written down yeah. here in kind of order. But uh, Chubb's just out having a cigar. He likes his cigars mm-hmm. uh, right beside the killdozer. And then the killdozer, you can see its red eyes. It has its yeah, lights it has red or its eyes. eyes, basically. And then uh, the uh, the shovel goes mm-hmm. up, 
and lands with a with a kind of dangerous thud, almost takes his foot off. Yeah, that's wild. Wasn't that Dennis though, or was that Ch- that Chubb? Uh, I think it was Chubb because okay. I remember the watch, but maybe it was Dennis. All these yeah. all these grizzled uh, guys Character look the same. Look the same. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, he's and the Killdozer's taunting him with his back turned. Yeah, Killdozer does a lot of taunting in this movie and a lot of sneaking around. <laughs> it's like sneaking behind bushes and hiding in the bushes, <laughs> poking out behind the tree. He, he at one point gets the drop on them. He comes up from behind the tree, and it's like you would hear that. Those engines are loud; they're we louder than a vehicle. That, uh, this Killdozer, the D Niner, is a big machine. It's giant and it's loud. Yeah, it is a full size bulldozer, and it's even got the claws in the back to dig into the ground so that it won't be it won't uh, lose its footing. So then, where do we go from there? I think Kelly is, uh, he's, he's like, we got to radio this in, you know, they bury Mac yeah, and he's on the radio. And meanwhile, Kiltozer is across the way looking at the radio, looking at the radio. Yeah. And as soon as they, uh, they get far enough away, what does Kildozer do? Runs over the radio, but it doesn't do that. Does it do that right it's now? Not immediately. It's at least like one or two scenes away from doesn't Hal die before then. No, no. Okay. It's showing me his notes. They drink for Matt Kelly's ruse, almost takes Chubb's foot off. Killdozer takes out the radio. Killdozer kills Al, a.k.a. Al. Yeah, 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 okay. So, uh, oh, yeah, so, like, it knocks over the radio, and then Hal goes and jumps on it, right? Or, no, he's on it. He well, jumps into it and starts it up because that was the thing. Like, they said, like, don't, like, Kelly told Chubb no one starts it before we're, before we're set. And so Hal jumps in it and starts it up, and Chubb's like, what are you doing? Get out of there, blah, 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 blah. And then it runs over the... That's when it takes yeah. out the radio, and then it takes... Uh, takes Al off towards... Dultron, we'll just yeah. call him. Take, takes him for a ride into the bush. Yeah, well, it says, like, it's heading right for the drill site, or whatever. And it throws Hal off of him, and then somehow, like, chases him around, even though it's very slow. It's very slow. It, it takes forever to turn around, and yeah. somehow Hal just cannot shake this thing. No. And he very foolishly decides, I'm going to hide in these... Basically, they're, they're metal tubes that are used for, um, for, like ditches. for ditches, yeah. yeah. And it just rolls over the tubes and kills them. And then cut to them, like, the, and then it goes off into the distance. It's not, not the smartest uh, guys they have on no. this, this uh, dig site. They're there to, pe- to make roads. <laughs> they're not there to fight killdozers. Um, and so from there, um, like, people are starting to say, like, hey, two guys have died on this, sh- this, this, uh, this shoot. Like, we should probably be, like figuring something out or like trying to get like some help and kelly's just like no we just got to keep working man that's it, what we're here to do tomorrow's gonna be another tough day get some sleep yeah and it is because the killdozer is out roaming the countryside <laughs> it is very like hilarious to see it just kind of like hiding in the bushes waiting for them um where do we go from here because this is this is when i think the plot because we who's still alive it's chubb dutch dennis and kelly right yeah yeah uh and so from here this is where the Kildos- Dutch yeah. has this little portable like radio, that mm-hmm. uh, one that I used to have as a kid too, like one of those little tape recorder yeah. things. And uh, we think that he's going to record a conversation or something, but he just he's wants just to listen to music. music. Yeah, which Kelly keeps telling him to shut off. It's some honky tonk tunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and which I assume like maybe the sound of the music will be what stops the Killdozer, or they'll confuse it, or they'll use it as a decoy. Never gets followed up on. Never. Um, but uh, this is the time where they say Dutch is coming off his spool. <laughs> yeah, because Dutch is thinking that there might be something weird going on on that island. Well, he actually has a very plausible... Right. It's not the right explanation, but he has the most logical mm-hmm. explanation for what is happening. 
that it's being remote controlled. However, this is after the Killdozer smashes up their their camp, right? Like, because they leave to look for it, and then when they're away, the Killdozer goes and smashes up their camp and rides over everything. And this is when they decide like we got to get to high ground. And Dutch is like, maybe it's it's remote controlled, which sounds legitimate. Whereas both Kelly and Dennis are like, like it's clearly possessed by a space demon or something. And but we can't <laughs> say that out loud because that's just silly, which it is. Um, yeah, they they both make fun of Dutch for this uh, remote control <laughs> that, theory. That idiot with his totally valid idea. Um, and during this point, they go up to the high ground. And this is when we start first start seeing the killdozer like hiding, S- sneaking behind trees, sneaking behind trees and hiding in the bushes, poking its little head out. Yep. Uh, and where do we go from there? Uh, they they go on a a, a little uh, journey. Um, uh, they mm-hmm. decide to they split up. Um, uh, Dutch and um, Chubb are in the same car. Kelly asks Dutch to ride with him, and and Dutch is like, I don't want to ride with you, man. Oh, yeah. Because um, no one likes Kelly. Nobody nobody gets along with Kelly. He's too much of a hard ass. Yeah. And so they have these three trucks, one of which is a Ford. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just got to stick it in there. Although it's two Jeeps and, and one truck. Yeah, it's two Jeeps and the and the Ford truck, which is loaded mm-hmm. with all the uh, the remaining fuel yep. that they have because the Killdozer has taken out most of the f- fuel. It's mm-hmm. here. We, it, it also takes out the dynamite. Like somebody had an uh, idea earlier that, we could use dynamite to blow it up, and then Killdozer's like, no, you can't, and runs over the dynamite and explodes it. Oh. Um, and so they, yeah, uh, and so they decide to build a bonfire, because maybe a plane might see the bonfire. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Killdozer um, takes care of that, too. Yeah. It's a, it's a very smart Killdozer. <laughs> Despite it's the second half of its name, it's not sleeping on the job. Um and so at this point, uh, do we already talk about uh, Chubb getting killed? Uh, it's it's well, it's about to happen. Yeah, right. So the plan is Chubb is gonna like run his truck directly at the killdozer, and they're like, "What? What'll that do?" It already took out dynamite. So I'm like, yeah, but it'll go underneath and it'll like burn out the electronics and the and the rubber. And they're like, "Okay, that makes sense." So they do it because well, so the killdozer is hiding behind a tree, and it's like engine is going. And so as they're coming down in their little caravan of two jeeps and one truck. Uh, Dennis is in, sorry, not Dennis, uh, Dutch is in Chubb's truck with Chubb. That sounds like a bad joke. <laughs> um, and from there, uh, the killdozer gets the, 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 the drop on them, and Dutch is like, bail out! And so he jumps out, but Chubb doesn't, uh, and the he, killdozer stuck in that Ford. doesn't get, doesn't run over the Ford. It actually pushes it off of a very small cliff, and then the gasoline explodes, and Chubb burns alive. And Chubb, then, who liked to have a cigar in his mouth that yeah. was never lit. It is now. Yeah, he gets it lit in the end. And then they bury Chubb. They keep burying him. and Wrapped up, of course, because it's... Because it's, yeah, it's... Charred. Exactly. Um, and it's now when the, the killdozer just comes up to the top of the, the hill overlooking the burial site and just kind of glowers down at them. It's like just taunting them. Yeah. Glowers, it's revving its engine, and it's shoving... Uh, rocks down the cliff yeah it's just like look what i can do and one of those rocks some of those rocks hit dennis and he's now kind of he's a little out concussed and he also has a bit of a limp so uh from there where are we going now emotions are frayed yeah Uh, dutch and dennis are at each other's throats a little bit yeah exactly it's all getting out of hand they finally do have a drink (laughs) like dutch at one point is like hey how about we listen to some music man 
How about we, uh, I don't know, what else are you going to do? And then Dennis is like, how about every man for himself? Yeah. Things just got <laughs> and dark. Then, and then they pull out some private stock from that's stashed away in one of the Jeeps. Some booze, and they, they have a drink, and, and they... Yeah, Kelly's private stock. Yeah, and... Who Ke- still does not drink. Yeah, and Kelly gives uh, Dutch the booze and says, here, you have it. And um, Dutch uh, proceeds to drink the whole bottle, wakes up the next morning, decides he's going swimming. Which actually would be smart because I don't think a killdozer can actually like make it into the water. It would probably just get stuck in the 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 ground would be too loose and it would get stuck in the mud. So he drives. It's too bad you weren't on that uh, job site. Graham. I know. Just head to the water. Um, but unfortunately, the 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 jeep he's driving runs out of gas just as the killdozer is like emerging from behind another bush, and this entire time. Dutch just keeps trying to start the, the Jeep no, as opposed he, to running away. He never thinks to jump out of the Jeep and run away, which yeah. he could easily do because the Killdozer can only go so fast. It's almost an Austin Powers gag. <laughs> it really is. If you remember that uh, from the classic scene. And that's basically just exactly what happened. The Killdozer runs over the Jeep and crunches up Dutch, and now it's just Dennis and Kelly who are left, who are the two least likable characters in the entire film. <laughs> this is a made-for-TV movie. This is supposed to be populist entertainment well, you're with your family, you want to watch a movie on Sunday on ABC, and you get Killdozer, and those two jerks survive. Well, I think uh, I think we're supposed to like Kelly's no-nonsense kind of... Uh, he's like the stern father figure of this of this troupe. Yeah. Um, so I think we're supposed to kind of like him. Yeah. And I do, like, Dennis just pointed out, like, even if we do survive, we're still going to lose our jobs. Like, no one will believe us that a space rock glowed blue onto a to a bulldozer and then it started to kill us he suggests that we'll just tell uh we'll we'll tell him it was a landslide that killed the other guys and kelly's like no we must only tell the truth yeah but it's like they need to have a landslide to actually show like see you guys landslide we were out luckily not underneath the landslide so so at this point they hatch a plan how do you kill a machine and dennis is like you fry it you fry the electronics so they set up a they can they uh, apparently the well, generator no, first first they they get a backhoe involved. Oh right, yeah, yeah the backhoe. Cuz they cuz they're running from the killdozer and they're like get into the backhoe. Yeah, so they get into it and they establish that the killdozer cannot knock over the backhoe, which no. really frustrates the killdozer. And he just keeps trying to do it even after they get out of the out of the backhoe and run away. He he's just there trying to keep knocking the thing over, but it just won't go down. And he even gets frustrated and shakes his uh, shakes that front part a little bit in frustration. Um, and so this is when they hatch the plan, like, we'll fry them, uh, because luckily the generator is still in one piece, and it's still under warranty. So they're like, it, it, it must still work. So they connect, uh, they cover up a whole bunch of metal, uh, I guess, sheeting or siding or something. Uh, they hide under some, the remnants of the tent, and then they connect the generator to it, and then basically Kelly goes out as bait to lure in the killdozer. The killdozer comes towards them, it rolls onto the, the metal sheeting, and then Dennis hits the juice and fries it, and the killdozer is dead. It, it dies kind of an agonizing death. Yeah. And it's probably trying to communicate with them, like, I just wanted to be your friend. Mm-hmm. But it can't. Why do you keep running away from me? <laughs> I just want to hug you. Yeah. Do you not like hugs on your planet? Um, and so at this point, well, the movie's almost over, and Dennis is still like, so what are we going to tell them? And Kelly's like, well, tell them the truth. And then they all have a good laugh, despite the fact that everyone they know being dead, 
And uh, they don't take much time after yeah. Killdozer kind of does its last little thing. Then they're like tapping it. Yeah. They listen to it. They're like, can't hear anything. Yeah. And then Dennis says rather ominously, boy, I sure am glad to still be alive. <laughs> and then they're kind of like, well, back to work. And who who is it that tosses I think, up? I think it's Kelly that throws his hard hat. He uh, throws it up into the air. And then, Phil, you called it. It would end on a freeze frame. And it did. Yeah. And then that's it. Killdozer. And that was Killdozer. Very light, very, uh, I mean, it's a TV movie. Um, so we're just going to do some trivia here. Um, I haven't done any research because I didn't know what movie we were going to do in advance, but here's some basic trivia. The film later gained, re- gained renewed, int- renewed interest and ultimately cult status when it was the subject of jokes on both Beavis and Butthead and The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien, which I could see it being a Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marvel Comics published an illustrated adata- adaptation in Worlds of Unknown number six in April of 1974 by Jerry Conway, Dick Ayers, Ernie Chan, and Artie Simek. The adaptation drew elements from both the TV movie and the original Theodore Sturgeon short story, which appeared in the November 1944 issue of Astounding Science Fiction. Now, Phil, you're saying that Theodore Sturgeon, he's a known science fiction author he's from the 50s? He's a known science fiction author, yeah. I think 50s, 60s. Um, yeah. Do you know of any specific titles that... Uh, I think Morden Hume is like one of the big name uh, canonized science fiction books. Not that I've ever read anything he's thought, written. Yeah. So he... Um, yeah, I mean, he, he actually wrote, he's got, uh, he wrote for the original Star Trek. Actually, did he? He wrote for the uh, Tales of Tomorrow TV series in 1951, uh, the Schultz Playhouse, The Invaders in 1967, which was a TV series about an alien invasion. He did write for the original Star Trek. He wrote two episodes. Uh, he wrote Killdozer, obviously. Um, he wrote for Land of the Lost. He wrote one episode of Land of the Lost. He wrote some stuff for stuff produced in, I think, French or France, maybe? Oh, it was Story By. That's what it was, based on a short story. Um, he wrote um, a few of his short stories were adapted into episodes of the 1980s adaptation of The Twilight Zone, including Yesterday Was Monday. Uh, he wrote the short story that The Other Celia was based on. And then that's basically about it for his filmography. Was this any uh, influence on the movie Maximum Overdrive? It doesn't seem to, although it could be a. Pre- it feels like it could be a prequel. Um, so, in the short story that the movie was based on, the Dozer was a caterpillar model D7. The Dozer was nicknamed Daisy Etta, which resembles the Spanish translation of D7 Diaseta. Uh, the maximum forward speed of the caterpillar D9 is 7.3 miles per hour. The average adult male can jog at 8.3 <laughs> miles per hour. None of these men should have died. No. Maybe Mac, because that's the element of surprise, but... Yeah, and Phil, you were mentioning, uh, I think it was the Wisconsin rock band Killdozer takes their name from this film. That's correct, yes. Yeah, about nine years later. Uh, In spite of receiving largely negative reviews from both critics and audience members, Killdozer has acquired a cult following over the years and is now considered a cult classic. It was filmed over the course of 20 days, uh, and uh, it's important to note that I think this is one of the first TV movies shot using two cameras. Uh, during the scene where everyone is leaving the camp, one of the workers uh, says he played in the 1964 Cotton Bowl and caught two touchdown passes. Phil Harris actually caught two touchdown passes for the University of Texas Longhorns in the 1964 Cotton Bowl. Harris was later inducted into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame. He played one season in the NFL before suffering a neck injury. Yep. He, then, he then went into law school and practiced for 37 years. Uh, and the only, as of 2022, the only surviving cast member is james a watson jr who played hal um and then our remaining heroes when they vanquish the monster by electrocuting it 
this is actually the same strategy used to stop the creature in the original 1951 version of the thing. So that's all the trivia I have on it. Uh, we'll run. Did kind of have a like a thing kind of vibe. Bunch to of it. men yeah. isolated. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that Sturgeon read who goes there and might have been slightly influenced. Or like my spin on it will be it won't be an al- it'll be an alien presence with isolated men. Oh my god! Because in the thing from another world, it's it's men. Well, I mean, in the John Carpenter thing, it's an Antarctic science uh, science um, uh, what you might call it place. Um, Science place. Science place. <laughs> Science place. So let's let's dig into uh, so Clint Walker, who plays Lloyd Kelly, he is best known for the Di- Dirty Dozen. Uh, yeah, he looked like he might be a member of the Dirty Dozen. He was also in the movie Small Soldiers, directed by Joe Dante. He was in the Ten Commandments. Oh hell! Yeah, he was in an episode of Kung Fu: The Legend Continues, Tropical Heat. He so he did a bunch of Canadian TV shows, uh, The Gambler with Kenny. Uh, Rogers. Rogers. Yep. Not, I was not Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins. Uh, he was on an episode of The Love Boat. Uh, he played the sheriff in the movie Hysterical. Uh, what else? Nothing else I really noticed. He was in Snow Beast. He was in The White. Uh, what is this? The White Buffalo, a Western star starring Charles Bronson. Uh, Killdozer, of course, and that's basically it. I mean. Uh, he did uh, one horror movie called Scream of the Wolf, which was a TV movie, in which a big game hunter comes out of retirement to help track down a killer wolf and then begins to suspect, suspect that it isn't a wolf, but an animal that can take human form. That sounds good. Uh, Robert Ulrich plays Mac or McCarthy. Uh, he, his was a name I recognized. He's from Toronto, which is, I'm guessing... Oh, he's from Toronto, Ohio. Sorry. Oh, boo. Boo, that's fake Toronto. Um... He has a lot of credits as well. Let's see. What are some choice credits here? Um, he was in the original Kung Fu series in 1973. He uh, played Grimes in the Dirty Harry sequel Magnum Force. Uh, he was in an episode of Gunsmoke in 1975, so that was close to the end of Gunsmoke. He was in um, Fighting Back, the story of Robbie Bleeler, where he played, or sorry, Rocky Bleeler, where he played Rocky Bleeler which is the story of a football jock Rocky Beeler makes it all the way to the pros with the Pittsburgh Steelers only to be drafted into the Vietnam War. Wounded by a hand grenade overseas, Beeler returns to the United States of America um, and is told he will never walk again. However, after a lengthy, grueling rehabilitation, Beeler ultimately walks again. Soon he trains with his old team for inspiration. Um, uh, and that's, that's it. He basically, a lot of real feel-good story. Something to do with the Super Bowl. I don't know. We're in Canada. We don't watch football. Except for the Argos. Go Argos. He was in <laughs> the Ice Pirates in 1984. He was in Turk 182, uh, directed by uh, Canadian directing legend Bob Clark. Uh, and R. I know R.I.P. Uh, I know Bob Clark was born in America, but he became a Canadian. He's ad- adopted. Yeah, it's like we don't discriminate against immigrants. It's like George Romero. He's Canadian. Sorry, he became a Canadian filmmaker. Colm Fiore was born in Boston. Yeah. Canadian icon. Um, do, do, do. What else? Did he do anything else interesting? Doesn't really look like it. Just a lot of TV stuff. Like TV stuff I've never heard of. Um, I'm being very dismissive. I mean, this is all good work. I assume it's good work being done by professionals. Um, he was in an episode of The Nanny. The 1990s sitcom starring Frank Crusher. 
He was in several episodes of The Love Boat, The Next Wave, playing Captain Jim Kennedy III. Um, Lots of Love Boat and Kung Fu connections. Yeah. It's funny, this uh, this movie seems like it would be ripe for like even like a modern sequel. Well, like, can, can you imagine? Like, uh, you know, some beachgoers, they come to this island. They gas like, up the old. Oh, there's a, there's, a, there's a bulldozer here. I wonder why that was abandoned. What's going mm-hmm. on here? Yeah. And they, uh, maybe one of them, I don't know, bleeds on it or something to get it going again. And mm-hmm. Now, Neville Dan, who play, a brand who plays Chubb, he has had a long career. He, he looked in, like it. He was in Stalag 17, Tora, Tora, Tora. The original DOA... Uh, Evils of the Night, which you have seen, Phil. Have I? Yeah, you watched it at Vanessa's Place. Oh, right, yes. I think that was even on a birthday movie. Yeah, he was uh, in the movie Without Warning, the classic horror film. Uh, he was in the Ninth Configuration as well. He played Major Marvin something or other. Um, wow, what a name. <laughs> sorry, it's not low. My internet's slow. <laughs> Major Marvin something something. Um, Colonel Happelblatt. Major Marvin Groper. Uh, he was in Angel's Revenge, which is a movie I've seen and is quite good. He was in an episode of Quincy, Medical Examiner, that fantastic 70s TV show. He was in an episode of Beretta. He was in Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive in 1976, where he played Judd. Dang. Yep. That's where he looks familiar for me from. He was in the 1975 film Psychic Killer, where he played Lemonowski. Um, and you know what? That's it. We're going to call it after that. Um, so that was Killdozer. Um, now, I actually think there is another movie called Killdozer. What? It's from 2021. Oh, no, it's a, it's episodes of a TV series. Called Killdozer? Well, in one, it's where they watch Killdozer. Uh, in the other one, it's where the TV series... No, it's a TV series called Creature Features. Oh, it's them watching Killdozer. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, this would be right. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that um, Killdozer is now associated with a, with an actual real life event that happened. Do you guys know about the real life Killdozer? I, I did hear about this Killdozer the other week. Yeah, so I'm unfamiliar. And there's a Netflix documentary about it as well. So it's about a man who um, uh, I forget his name, but he basically um, Marvin Hemeyer. Um, he lived in a small town in Colorado, and essentially the whole town turned against him. Cut off the road that led to his business, which killed his business. Cut off his water. Um, and so he secretly took a bulldozer and fortified it. He poured cement around it. He used sheet metal to reinforce it. He mounted machine guns to it. And then he just went on a rampage, although he famously did not kill anyone and specifically only targeted government buildings, including the police station and the local um, mayor's office or the city hall. Not much of a killdozer if it didn't kill anyone. Yeah, but they like they liked the sound of it. And I'm pretty sure people were remembering killdozer from 1974 when they were talking about it. Um, but yeah, that's actually one of the few Netflix documentaries that I actually think is worthwhile watching because it actually does examine the story from every perspective. But that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. So guys, Phil, the birthday boy, what is your final thought on Killdozer? It was okay. I agree. Yes. Anything else? Not really. Um, I was expecting it to be a little more outlandish despite it being a TV movie, but, but it was just... Thims the brakes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Kit. What are your final thoughts on Killdozer? I mean, similar. It's, yeah. it's a movie that we just watched. It was mm-hmm. only seventy-five minutes, which was good. Yeah, good length mm-hmm. uh, for that film. Uh, nothing too remarkable. It is. It is hilarious that all these men died from this 
easily avoid <laughs> avoidable killdozer. Not even running, but jogging, you'd avoid yeah. it. You could tease this thing all day. You could just keep it busy, like yeah. oh, I'm over here, killdozer. Yeah, and run away. Uh, I did think it was uh, almost adorable how it would hide behind bushes and like look at the men. And I feel like it just wanted love and companionship, and uh, and they just they couldn't give it to him. Because it loves you to death. If only there was a, uh, a an attractive lady dozer that could have uh, sated mm -hmm. its needs. Well, you can write the sequel. That's, I'm, I'm working on that tonight. Kill Doze, Dozer Kill 2. Kill Dozer fanfic. Yeah. <laughs> Kill Dozer 2. Kill Dozer in love. <laughs> I was going to say, Kill Dozer 2, Roses in the Afternoon. <laughs> um, and for my final thoughts, this movie is staggeringly okay. Um, I got nothing else. It's overwhelmingly really. okay. Yeah, that that's the thing. It's like it's it hits a baseline of like, of uh, what's the word competent, and just sticks to it. It kind doesn't go above it. Doesn't go below. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun to watch in a group. If yeah. You're, if you're thinking about putting it on for gags where nobody really needs to pay attention. Yeah, if I'd watched this by myself, it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been as much fun as us being like the killdozer's hiding behind a tree. <laughs> Look out, guys! He's gonna get him. He's gonna get you. It's a slow paced seventy five minutes. It is a bit of a slow seventy five minutes, but you know the killdozer poking its nose out of bushes is, is happy. And then when he got like angry at the at the backhoe and could because it couldn't do it, it's just it, like, it, it, they use the backhoe to knock off its uh, its um uh, oh the exhaust pipe the exhaust pipe uh, the, the the roof exhaust pipe yeah. Which it loved blowing that and teasing yeah. them, and then they knock it off, and that really makes the killdozer angry. Yeah. It's a sad dozer then. Or a mad dozer. There we go. Ooh. Yep. Sounds like a person who's angry and sleepy at the same time. Um, all right, so. A very He's a mad dozer, that one. Yep. It's like the asylum knock on the killdozer. <laughs> mad dozer. Um, all right, so. In 1973, William Freakin's The Exorcist based on the novel by William Peter Blatty, was released and it shocked audiences worldwide. Then, in 1991, Teenage Exorcist was released <laughs> and shocked no one. And that's the movie we're here to talk about tonight. It's Death by Video. Good evening, I'm Phil. Good evening, I'm Kit. And I'm Graham Sutton. Welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem. We are officially in the spooky season. We'll be, we're going to watch, uh, I almost want to say Disco Exorcist, uh, Teenage Exorcist. <laughs> there is a Disco Exorcist. There is we a, should watch I think it. there is a Disco Exorcist movie. We're going to watch uh, Teenage Exorcist and we'll be back to talk about it afterwards. If you're looking for more horror outside of the mainstream, look no further than Unsung Horrors, a podcast about underseen horror movies. I'm Lance. And I'm Erica. Every other week, we'll cover a horror movie with fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. We'll even give you double feature recommendations to pair with the movies we discuss. From gothic to shot on video, from slashers to comedies, from giallo to j-horror, we'll cover all the subgenres. So join us as we unearth these hidden gems of horror. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And that was Teenage Exorcist. <laughs> I almost started singing the song. You can't resist singing it. Oh, it's got such a great theme song by a band. It is the exist. most monotonous theme song in the world. It's so, so good. It's the song of the summer for sure. Yeah. Well, the fall now. Yeah. I'm just trying not to sing it. the song of next summer. Yeah, and the summer after that. Teenage Exorcist. Exorcist. Teenage Exorcist. Exorcist. He's got the devil on the run. Oh, oh yeah. yeah.
That's oh, it. That's yeah. the entire That's song. That's the song. It's great, though. It's just like it's an earworm, and it's perfect. Um, so Teenage Exorcist, the interesting thing about this film it was actually it stars uh, Brink Stevens as Diane, who becomes possessed by the demon, but it was also written by her as well. Um, so Brink Stevens, for those who don't know, she is a super prolific. Uh, she was like in the 90s and early 2000s Scream Queen era, She and especially like um, low-budget stuff like by Fred Olin Ray and... I don't think she worked with Jim Wynorski, but I could be wrong on that. But she did a lot of, like, you know, video B-movies um, and theatrical probably to a small extent. Um, uh, she was a scream queen, and she was, like, one of the people along with her and uh, Linnea Quigley. Your favorite. Yeah, she's great. Uh, who just kind of, like, came out and were, like, embraced this and really got involved in the films they were making. And, yeah, like, one of her... so. Talking about Brink Stevens, her first ever film was the 1972 film Necromancy, which was just a small part um, as Black Sabbath member. Oh, and it was it was the Necromancy reissue in 1983 that she was in. So her real first film was as an extra in the Peter Falk female wrestling drama All the Marbles, which is a real oh, wow. real thing about uh, Peter Falk managing some professional wrestlers have to go on the road but her first like credited that sounds great to be honest with yeah you. um her first credited like character role was in the slumber party massacre in 1982 as linda she's the one she's actually the first victim of the driller killer um right she uh she it happens in high school and then she did a bunch of like other films like where she played not really characters but just sort of like walk-ons like she was in this film called let's do it as jogging girl she was in the film private school as schoolgirl. She was in uh, Surf 2 as Student Fan, Fatal Games as Shower Girl. She also had an uncredited role in uh, Body Double. Uh, she was in Savage Streets as, again, high school girl in Shower, like no real crediting. And then by the time you get to the late 1980s, um, that's when she starts to actually get some characters. She was even in Three Amigos. She played the actress in the silent movie and was uncredited. Um, her real breakthrough breakthrough was in sorority babes in the slime ball bolorama from 1988 uh, where she played the character of taffy that also starred linnea quigley and was i believe directed by i just have to double check here uh by, by david dakota and it was look at that i'm right then she uh starred in the iconic nightmare sisters she did a tales from the dark side episode she was in the naked the first naked gun movie um just did a ton of stuff she was in transylvania twist in 1989 Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, where she was an uncredited girl in dressing room. I, I just watched Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, not too long ago. Um, and then she just did a lot of straight-to-video stuff. She was in the film Spirits, Bad Girls from Mars, Scream Queen, Hot Tub Party, which was a, very much a direct-to-video movie. Uh, and then brings, brings us up to Teenage Exorcist. She went on afterwards to appear in Munchie, um, Garfield and Friends as a voice, the film Jacko in 1995. Um, what else? A lot of stuff. She did some. She did some like uh, erotic thrillers, like *Illicit Dreams* two and *The Masseuse*. Uh, she was in, unfortunately, in the film *Replicator*, which I don't recommend anyone watch. <laughs> it's about somebody. Why is that? It is a Fred Olin Ray film about a scientist who works for the army who develops this ray that when it hit someone and it unfortunately features Gunnar Hansen because after his post Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers collaboration with Fred Olin Ray so this Ray um, shoots a, an army person and then it turns them into a hot sexy babe 
Damn. Who once, and then after the hot, sexy babe, ha- babe has sex with a man, they become a alligator person. <laughs> you're, you're saying not to see this, but you're selling it. Right no, now. no, don't see it. It's not good. It's really not good. Um, but yeah, I forgot she was in Replicator. Yeah, and then beyond that, she did a lot of just direct-to-video stuff, and like she basically beca- started being cast on her name uh, as she got a lot, like as her career went along. But she also produced some movies, and she also wrote some movies. And Teenage Exorcist is actually her first credited screenplay credit, uh, which is 1991. Uh, she then was in the it was a direct-to-video film Wild Spirit in 2003 that um, she wrote. Uh, Dr. Horror's Erotic House of Idiots in 2004, The Perfect Woman in 2004, Personal Demons in 2018, and then most recently in the year 2022, this year, Terror Tunes 4, she wrote the segment Personal Demons. Uh, so she's had a long, prolific career, over 230 credits uh, to her name. Just a, a a total like legend in the industry. And this is the film of hers that we're watching. Um, Teenage Exorcist. Uh, the other funny thing about this movie is that it doesn't actually contain a Teenage Exorcist. No, I thought Eddie Deason would be the Teenage Exorcist. I think he is the, but he doesn't do any exorcism. There's no, there's nothing. no exercising going on whatsoever. So I don't know. It's very, yeah. I have a feeling that like, again, it's one of those things where it's like we have a title, and we have actors, but even we should point out that um, I don't Eddie Deason wasn't initially cast in the film so we'll get into a little bit of trivia before we get into the plot because the plot is basically what is the plot guys well i I was gonna say is that somebody probably just came up with that title song yeah and they were like well we have to now make a movie title this this has to be the title of the movie now fred olin ray hire me to remake this movie (laughs) i am putting myself out there i will work for free i really want to do a remake of teenage exorcist with an actual teenage exorcist yeah it's same thing one house a bunch of people and yeah, just you, you could figure it out. He could be like the uh, like the priest's son or something. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. But like the priest's son. Well, I mean, a Catholic priest. Yeah. A well, son, wink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. An Anglican minister. We don't do exorcisms. Yeah, it's 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 the it's, it's the, Catholics. the Catholics and the wackos. Like there are real teenage exorcists in the United States yes. right now, but they're wackos. Don't. Oh yeah, like the Zoom exorcists. Yeah, or just like and. Did you hear about what happened at a uh, religious school in Canada recently? No. Okay, so Oh, I think I might have heard exorcism. There was an exorcism that happened. Basically, this mother sent her kid to a school which was like, okay, they're Christian affiliated, but they're not really. They're more about just like, you know, having a good time at summer camp, very wholesome, all that stuff. Turns out one of the counselors thinks one of the the the, the campers is possessed by a demon. They perform an exorcism freaks out the kid so badly that the kid can't sleep anymore, believes in that the devil is after him. And when the mom went to the camp, they were like, well, yeah, what were we supposed to do? We we had a demonically possessed kid. And it's like... I, I'm fair. And like apparently the kid is actually just like has epilepsy or something. Oh, dear. That, that's so, probably the uh, reason for a lot of exorcisms throughout history. Yeah. Teenage exorcist. <laughs> Teenage exorcist. Ah, oh, just a great banger of a theme song. Um, okay, let's, let's get into this. So... Uh, the other thing, uh, before we get in, I mean, the plot of this movie is basically, I'm going to sum it up as briefly as I can. Uh, Brink Stevens plays Diane. She finds a cheap place for rent that's being rented out by Michael Berryman. Uh, for 25 bucks a month, she can stay there. It's a whole house all to herself with 12 be- bedrooms plus bonus, whatever that means. Um, and then on the first night there, 
she gets possessed by a demon that's living in the basement. Then there's also the there's ghost. also represented by the... Oh, yeah, she gets possessed by the demon, but there's also the ghost who we see that terrible portrait of. Yeah. yeah. And there's zombies for some reason. And then she calls her sister, Diane, or her sister who comes over with her, and she drags along her, her boyfriend, Mike. Sally. Her sister, Sally. And Sally brings along her boyfriend, Mike. And Mike is played by a Fred Olin Ray stalwart who's been in a lot of his films. A corncob smoking pipe. Uh... That's not a corncob pipe. It's just a, a corn pipe. Cob, yeah. Kind um, of like a corncob. It's a pipe. It's a, it's a, it's a old tobacco smoking yeah. pipe. Yeah. The old wacky tobacco. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think Jay it's Richardson. I know. Sorry, not the walkie talkie. <laughs> he's played by Jay Richardson, uh, whose real name is actually John Henry Richardson, or John Henry. Yeah, John Henry Richardson. But he's okay, so that's pseudonym. just he's got a longer name. Yeah, and he has a pseudonym. He is a, another super prolific actor. He has 175 acting credits, and he actually was all, he was in Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. He was in every Vice Academy movie. He's in a lot of Fred Olin Ray movies, and this is produced by Fred Olin Ray. Why? Why? Kind of has that same feeling. There's not as much explicit nudity as there would be in a Fred Olin Ray movie. There's there some, is like some like some when she shots. first well yeah. when she first phones Sally for example Sally yeah. is like naked answering the phone from there's, the back there's no yeah reason. but she puts on a robe yeah 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 um, just like but I mean I'm sure that was a Fred Olin Ray like we must include this so Sally and Mike well actually one of the the first thing the, the sort of cold open to the mm-hmm. movie is uh, the Spanish oh, yeah. uh, the maid. maid going down the stairs and then you got a woman with big tits on the stairwell with her neck ripped open. Uh, the maid screams, and that's when the banging intro song uh, hits, mm-hmm. which I'm struggling not to sing right now. Um, I'm trying to look up the actress of the, the who played that role. Uh, she's not. Oh, Jazze, J A S A E. Um, a bunch of different credits actually. She was ninety. She has ninety acting credits. So let's go through that. <laughs> For the, for the model that was on the stairway? Yeah, yeah. She's in a lot of bondage videos, apparently, according to IMDb. Um, this wouldn't Do we need surpri- to go title by title? No, we're not going to go title by title. But she, this wouldn't surprise me because Fred Olin Ray did occasionally cast pornographic actors in his... Well, um, they actually, you weren't listening, I guess, to the uh, the commentary. We had the, on the audio commentary oh, yeah? for the DVD, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I think... Um, Brink Stevens, Brink Stevens and Jay Richardson. And Jay Richardson. Yep. Um, but they were saying, oh, that's blah, blah, blah. Uh, she was... They actually said, but I wasn't paying attention either. But they did point her out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a she. Yeah, she has a lot of credits, and most of them are bondage videos. So, say Uh The film is directed by Grant Austin Waldman. Um, he has not too too many directing credits to his name. Only four. Uh, so he directed. This is actually his second film. His first one was The Channeler, also from 1991. So it came out just before this. Uh, then he made Gator King in 1997, and then in 2001 he did the film Bitten, Victoria's Shadow, which also stars Brink Stevens. So they reunited. Nice. Brink Stevens was not in The Channeler. Uh, but he's mostly known as a producer. He has 14 producing credits. Um, just trying to see if there's anything interesting here. Beverly Hills Vamp, Terminal Force, Mob Boss, Bad Girls from Mars, w- Wizards of the Demon Street, uh, the Channeler and Teenage Exorcist, Dark Universe, Fatal Justice, Naturally Bad, Gator King, Held for Ransom, Blood, Bullets, and Babes. Gator and King. then finally, Emerald Lug- Lagoon in 2011. Um, and then not much else besides that. So, uh, 
Okay, let's let's try and get into this plot and get it over with quickly because there's not much to it. Well, yeah, you were just saying yeah. like uh, she runs the house, she gets possessed, she calls, she calls her, over uh, her sister who brings along her boyfriend. She's uh, also talking on the phone to a, a possible love interest. What was his name again? John. He, well, Jeff? he keeps on calling. He yeah. even like when she gets, he's like, I just wanted to try out your new number, so I'm gonna come over there with a bottle of uh, wine uh, a little later on. She's like, please don't. Yeah, he's really pushy. <laughs> and then he keeps on calling back, and then she does get a call like saying, Yeah, the therapy. Yeah, or something like that. And she's like, "Oh, he's changing his tactics or something." Well, that's what I said. Oh, yeah, good joke, kid. <laughs> good joke. Uh, yeah, that is Jeff. The character is Jeff, played by Tom Shell. He sucks mostly. Yeah, just, his character sucks. sucks. And then at the end, they want he gets he gets Brink Stevens, which is just but like nonsense. yeah, when he does show up, he he starts kink shaming everyone. Yeah, yeah, because he assumes that. There must be an orgy happening at this house. He's outright sexually harassing her. Um, That's yeah, true. He also has the worst line of dialogue I've ever heard anyone oh, yes. speak. Oh, yes. You wrote it down. Let's I don't it. even want to say it, Please unfortunately. Do. Uh, he says... I'll well, say it if you're embarrassed. He, well, uh, there's a point There's a point in the movie where he calls back, but it's actually um, our boy Mike that picks up uh, because Mike is there, and he picks up the phone and uh, because Diane's busy being possessed and, and being extra horny. She gets possessed, and she becomes extremely horny. Uh, for mm-hmm. any guy um so he picks up the phone and uh jeff just starts in with the uh, the hot talk and he says well, i want to do this i want to do that and at one point he says i want to run run my tongue through your crevs and crackuses <laughs> and it's fantastic it's, it's like vomit inducing yeah it's terrible um so uh john shell who plays jeff he was in another film that we did on the podcast surf nazis must die Huh. He played the role of Smeg. Okay. <laughs> one of the worst movies we've ever done on the podcast. No, it was not the worst movie by <laughs> I didn't far. say it was the worst. I thought it was one of the worst. It's not one of the worst either. I mean, the, none of the movies we watch are bad. I, oh, whatever we've watched. Oh, I bad. mean, like, but yeah, but there are no, but the ones, the, the ones that I don't, we don't actually turn into episodes. Yeah. <laughs> what was that one that we watched? Oh, uh, Zombies the Beginning. That, yeah. that we, I was just like, I'm just abandoned. We're not, we're, I'm not going to I mean, this. we recorded Jason Goes to Hell. Yeah, that was a rough one. Um, <laughs> the end. There, there are some bad movies. Uh, no. Uh, but let's point out, uh, so Sally is actually played by Elena Shagun? Shagun? Shogun? Sure. Um, sorry, I'm going to look into her background right now. Um, she she does the most nude work in the film. She's in the she's shower a, but as well. It, it's a lot of suggestions. It's mostly from behind. Yeah, there's the one shower sequence where she gets her boob grabbed by a demon. But hand. we actually don't see the boob. You um, do. Nah, go you back. See. It's like the meat hook in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You might think you're seeing it, but you actually don't. That's what I, I noticed that during the scene. But she has a had a a pretty good career. She has 29 acting credits on IMDb. Her um, most recent being 2022's The Check In. Um, she was also in another film in 2022 called They Crawl Beneath. Um, I'm trying to see what else she would be that were was a little bit bigger. She was in Marked for Death, the Steven Seagal film in 1990. She was in Teenage Exorcist. Um, what else? Teenage Exorcist. Teenage Exorcist. Teenage Exorcist. He's got a devil on the run. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, she was in the TV series LA Heat throughout the in the late 90s. Uh, Tremors 3 in 2001. Oh, wow. Um, not too many other notable things, or at least things that I recognize. Uh, so we'll go back to the movie. So, so they're over, Jeff is there, and 
basically like everyone's convinced okay something shenanigans are going on let's call the priest the priest comes over this is um father flanagan played by robert Corey, who we were all trying to place but didn't know where we saw him from he's got a memorable name but yeah and like he kind of looks memorable too he looked he's probably done more tv work that he looks like he could have played a detective in a tv show or maybe something like that and he's credited as if you should know who he is special guest yeah yeah well i mean this was also so here's the thing that fred olin ray did a lot he would cast people like from way, way back, aging stars that people kind of forgot about. Like he cast the like I remember he put like the guy who played Hopalong Cassidy in a film in the eighties and no one knew who he was. So he's just like not really I, he he does this, like Fred Olin Ray does this. Um and funnily enough, the um the priest doesn't remember all the words to the exorcism. Like at one point the Bible that he's reading from Bursts into Flames, and then he says, son of a bitch, and drops it. Um, and it looks like he throws some holy water on Brink Stevens, and it looks like she's cured of her possession. Turns out she's not. And then he accidentally turns her into a dog when he can't remember the specific words of exorcism, which I don't think is actually a part of the Catholic doctrine or dogma. Um, and then at this point, he's like, we got to call in the heavy hitter. So he wants to call in Monsignor, was it Cannoli? That's not right. Uh, Monsignor. Connolly, I think. Connolly, yeah. And so he calls um, Monsignor oh. Connolly's phone number, which has a the very pizza funny... Parlor, yeah. No, 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 it's not the pizza parlor. He calls the original phone number, and it gets the answering machine with a really funny um, funny voicemail that like I think ends in like, um, don't lose hope, I'm having dinner with the Pope. Um, call this number instead, but then he calls the wrong number, and that's the pizza place. Yeah, and also the number is, the consignor's number is written on the back of a hot oil massage yeah. parlor card i know which mike goes full body massage Ooh, some kind of like raised eyebrows thing about like wah, wah, the priest goes to a massage parlor um <laughs> i'm just looking up robert Corey's. this is nothing but he was in an invisible mom too <laughs> invisible mom too invisible mom too <laughs> that's fantastic 1999 oh my gosh <laughs> and a movie called mom's out of sight yeah i i'm not sure if uh these are related, but they seem to be. It's the Invisible Mom genre. Yeah, you never know. Um, <laughs> so at this point, the um, the the guys at the pizza parlor are like, "Well, let's send Eddie the Dork out to deal with these people." And so then, then this character of Eddie the Dork is played by Eddie Deason. Now, real life creep Eddie Deason. Is he a real life creep? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. Let me. I just know him from because he. I could see it. I think he had his first role in "I Want to Hold Your Hand." He was also yep. in War Games. He was in Greece. Oh, he was That's in best known. Oh, in interesting. Greece, yeah. um, he was. A lot of people think he's in um, uh, Return uh, Revenge of the Nerds, but he's not. They actually he auditioned for it, and they basically just the copied his mannerisms and his performance because that's actually how he sounds and talks and acts, and still like. God damn. Yeah, and he uh, he became a favorite of. Uh, Robert Zemeckis. He was also in the Polar Express, and uh, he was in Surf Two, which famously has "There is no Surf One." Um, when Surf Two, by the way, has the greatest tagline: it's "Surf Two, the end of the trilogy." Um, which I don't think we'll ever watch Surf Two on this. Maybe we will. Um, <laughs> You've left the door open. For <laughs> I know. Surf it's two. Like, well, never. Who knows? We'll He's see. about to close that door, folks, and then he left it. He yeah, left it we, open. We a crack. We can't. We can't do that. So Eddie Deason shows up, and I'm like, "Yes, finally, we get the teenage exorcist." But we don't. He just reads comics and he knows about horror comics, and so he goes down into the 
to the basement. There's some some goofy, horny scenes. He's the virgin. Like all yeah. of a sudden, the the demon that's down there. We demands a virgin. Needs a virgin for the sacrifice, and he's the perfect guy. Yeah. He's like, how do you know I'm a virgin? And then they look at him, oh. and he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, lots of also like uh, cartoon sound effects in this. Like, there's a slide whistle. A slide points. whistle, yeah. I can't there's remember for what. There's a lot of boinks. Yeah, and like some like wrench sounds when someone's trying to like move someone's arm. Oh yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of jokes and fun stuff going on here. Um, what happens next after that is there's a whole bunch of like this movie also falls into the we go downstairs, we go back upstairs, we go downstairs, we go back upstairs stuff, which kind of gets exhausting. I won't lie. Like this movie, it ran. Yeah, sometimes of... we see ferrets. Uh, oh yeah, the the al- albino ferrets. The albino that ferrets, everyone refers yeah. to as rats. They call them rats. They are not rats, folks. And uh, they disappear from the stairway, and we never find out what happens to those those ferrets. It might be as Phil said that the ferret union was like you, they could only be on set. For... Well, I think they probably could only afford them for one day and needed to shoot more, more going up <laughs> and down rentals, the stairs, yeah. going up and down the stairs sequences on day two or whatever. I'm not sure how, how long this this film took to shoot. I'm guessing not very long. I think this was probably one of Fred Olin Ray's like five day one week wonders. Maybe it felt yeah. like it. Mm-hmm. He was famous for doing like five days and then two days and three days, and it's just like a race to the bottom. It's a rather padded eighty two minutes. Yeah, I found eighty two minutes. That felt longer. It felt like the movie ran out of steam around <laughs> the one hour. Like right after when Eddie Deason showed up, I was like, okay, like there's only going to be like twenty minutes left, and instead there was. 35 minutes left well as i was saying it it has the vibe of like that old hbo tales from the crypt like when they would do kind of a goofy episode yeah of that but those are uh, those are a solid 30 minutes there's no commercials so they're about half an hour long mm-hmm. that's as long as the movie maybe needed to be I would, for sure i would say 70 minutes but again <laughs> okay Friddle and ray reach out to me let me remake this film <laughs> give me the same budget you had which is probably like way less give me the same house give me one house one location i'll make it work because the other thing too, as well, is that I'm pretty sure, just from knowing my own my own background in, in film production, they probably shot every single scene in this house, like even scenes that were set at the office or at the other oh, house. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I'm sure, like in a different room or something. This film, this house has been used a ton as well. Like it was used in, um, I mean, on the commentary track, Jay Richardson said that some Charles Bronson movie had shot there. I recognize it from Evil Tunes. Apparently, it's also in Slumber. Not Slumber Party Massacre 2 or Sorority House Massacre 2. That's the Jim Wynorski film. You get them straight. Yeah, I know. It's hard, though, because there's a lot of – both of them, there's a lot. Um, uh, yeah, let me just double-check. Make sure. Yeah, the house was used for Sorority House Massacre 2 in Evil Tunes, and it was located across the street from the house used in The People Under the Stairs, so it is a very well-filmed street. Um, who knows if it's still being filmed today or if the house even stands because the audio commentary track was recorded – in the year 2002, so 20 years ago, during the DVD boom, which makes me sad to say that that was 20 years ago. Cause... No, it wasn't. Okay. Um, we live in denial. Yeah, time time doesn't move that fast, unfortunately. Um, time is not real. So through a lot of shenanigans, the priest goes outside to face off with the zombies. Oh, yeah, there's zombies for some reason. Yeah. The priest distracts them with like card tricks and stuff. Um, and then and he's it, about to get eaten, then he's like... Yeah, who's here from Notre Dame? Aha! Like some kind of like I'm also from Notre Dame, I guess. Or you went there. Um, Eddie Deason goes down into the basement where he starts uh, working the crowd, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Eddie Deason um, goes downstairs and gets knocked out, and they bring him back upstairs, and then Brink Stevens kidnaps Mike. Well, Brink Stevens was a dog, and now she's not a dog. She's instead in like a dominatrix outfit, sort of. Yeah, 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 sort of. With a uh, riding whip. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a crop actually crop riding crop riding yeah. crop yeah um so she comes back upstairs and 
uh, grabs Mike instead because she's like, I guess this guy will do. Like he, he's as good as a virgin, I guess, even though definitely not. Um, brings him downstairs, puts him in a dress because it needs to be a woman apparently. And puts him, yeah, well because the demon says, "Get me a girl." Yeah. And so she's like, I can make this work. And yeah. she puts him in a dress and puts lipstick on him. He protests. He's kind of the funniest uh, part of the movie. I like it his is little... like, it's, <laughs> it's bizarre. Jay Richardson normally bothers me in movies, but in this one he didn't. So I don't know if that's a, like I'm just getting used to his shtick. Or this well, he is plays just... the pompous business husband, but he does it uh, pretty well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Mike is down there, uh, brings Deasons, like puts him in a dress, and then puts makeup on him. And then Eddie Deason somehow gets back down there. And then she de-virginizes Eddie Deason. He doesn't, and Eddie Deason doesn't really do anything else after that. A real weird scene too. Yeah. Like it, he doesn't. She like massages his feet, and then he puts his feet in some slippers. And he's reading like old duck slippers. Yeah, duck yeah, slippers. And he's reading but like old. The... Sorry, go ahead. He's reading old like Bavarian poetry to her or something because she says he looks like some count of Bul- some Bul- Bulgarian poet. Or Bavarian poet. Yeah, that's right. She does. Say Even that. though he says like Baruchata at some point, which is definitely not Bulgarian. Yeah, whatever. I mean, I don't think they were like going, stickling for uh, realism. Yeah, hard yeah. There was realism. no vermicillitude uh, no. attempted with teenage exorcist. <laughs> Very little, at least. Very little. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would love to be able to rent a whole house for twenty five dollars, but that that wasn't even possible even in nineteen ninety one. Um, and then after that, there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that go on and. So you could describe the entire movie this way. Shenan- yeah. Shenanigans. A whole bunch of shenanigans. And uh, how do they defeat the guy again? Oh, um, the, the demon? so uh, they've, they've got one of these uh, cat fights between the two oh, sisters. Oh, right. The two sisters They're are wrestling. Um, it's uh, They kind of spend a lot of time yeah. on that. The demon goes um, to stab Mike in the chest. The demon goes to stab Mike in the chest. He's got a little X on his chest. And then uh, the stupid uh, Jeff. Jeff is there. He finds a bucket of water. He tips it over. He tips it over, and then he gets the wires. From, yeah, from the electrical from circuit. From nearby and electrical he circuit. electrocutes the demon, and that's that's it. Yeah, it immediately depossesses Diane. Yeah. Um, Everyone goes back upstairs. Diane, in turn, gets electrocuted as well. Yeah. Oh, no, no, the, the demon comes out of her. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. Um, and, and that's so, basically Well, it. they go upstairs. They find the Father Flanagan singing to the zombies. Yep, he's singing a nice... or something. Yeah, he's singing an Irish ditty. And then we cut to the future where... The near future where the zombies are working at the pizza place. And Eddie Deason is back there again. He's in a management role. Yeah. And then cut to credits when we hear that song, Teenage well, Exorcist. They, they got the uh, the gag where like they order the Bulgarian head cheese. Oh yeah, and it's they've got the demon's head, face. Yeah. They've got his head, and then Michael Berryman works in the uh, the pizza parlor now, and he puts it on the pizza, and he puts it in the oven, and they close the oven door. It's and a then POV, he looks at you as he closes. It's the a oven POV door. from inside the oven, looking out. He closes the oven door, and then credits. Teenage Exorcist. Teenage Exorcist. Okay. Um, all right. He's got the devil no. on the run. Oh, yeah. It's the world's longest song. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long. It's long. Um, all right, so some trivia on this. According to Brink Stevens, who was a screenwriter, Eddie Deason's role was originally written for a cute girl. However, after Deason was cast, Brink had to do frantic rewriting on the set. Sally and Diane were also only friends in the original script. Someone working on the film thought that Brink and, and Elenia resembled each other so the script was rewritten to make them sisters that would be like really interesting that would also fit in because there's only really two women in the script which is uh diane and sally and so if they introduce a third woman that would kind of make sense i guess might pass the bechdel test then yeah 
I mean, this film does this film pass the Bechdel? It does. Two women have names, and they have a conversation about something other than a man. Did they? Yes. Yeah. What were they talking about? Possession. <laughs> well, they're talking about the the devil then. And their new and Brink's new and Diane's new house. Congratulations, yeah. teenage exorcist passes the Bechdel test. <laughs> teenage exorcist. Okay, I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, Eddie Deason doesn't appear until the 54 minute mark in the movie i'm like yeah no no crap about that um bring steven said that they asked former oh uh former porn star tracy lords to play buffy but she turned it down saying it was inappropriate who is buffy like just the buffy character no not not buffy the vampire slayer but buffy but i think buffy might have been eddie's original character oh I eddie see. demon yeah i don't really know who buffy would have been in the film tracy lords had already done crybaby at this point yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know who the character is that they're referring to. Maybe maybe the original teenage exorcist. Yeah, I think that's probably it. But I mean, who knows. Um also this is IMDb trivia. Like there's not really that much deep like deep in-depth in-depth analysis of teenage exorcist. No? Um no. Not a, uh, not a criterion essay on that no. one. No. There was uh this is Joey Castro's first job as a makeup artist. He was 18. Coincidentally, Brink Stevens had met him four years before when he was a young teen and won a Monsterland magazine contest to meet her when she was a va- she was its vampiric, vampiric mascot, Evila, not Elvira, Evila, E V I L A. Important dis- distinction. Important and legal distinction. <laughs> now, the other interesting thing about this film is the cinematography was handled by William H. Molina. I thought it was Gary Graver. It, well, he was a second camera or something. Oh, okay. He's not listed on IMDb, but his name was in the credits. Yeah, he... So Gary Graver, he has a long and complicated history as a cinematographer and director. Humble beginnings with Orson Welles as a cinematographer. Yeah, he's not credited on IMDb for um, for Teenage Exorcist. He did do Evil Tunes the following year, which is also in the same house and directed by Fred Olin Ray. Um... Yeah, he started his career with Orson Welles. He shot The Other Side of the Wind, I believe. Yeah. The film that was recently finished. Um, and then he did he did so much stuff. Like, he has 234 credits, which is an amazing amount for a cinematographer. Um, oh, he he was the, the DOP on Satan Sadists in 1969. That is the Al Adamson film starring Russ Tamblin. He did a lot of B-movies uh, in the 70s, like exploitation stuff. He did Dracula vs. Frankenstein, another Al Adamson film, which I'm looking forward to coming out on Blu-ray later on this month. Um, and then that, that's when he got into like working with um, with Orson Welles and doing a bunch of that stuff. And then, oh, he was also the DOP on the Invasion of the B-Girls, another film I've seen, which is very fantastic. And then he, of course, did... He did Dr. Dracula. He, he DOP'd The Toolbox Murders, Death Sports, Sunset Cove, a lot of Death Dimension, another great one. Um, Smokey and the Hot Wire Gang, which whatever that is, I guess it's a Smokey and the Bandit knockoff. Um, and he also, of course, he did like a lot of uh, pornography in the 1980s as well. Well, he also was the UP for Smokey Bites the Dust, Hollywood High Part Two, Texas Lightning. Um, <clears throat> but he um he was known because he did do some some pornographic work, but it wasn't as much as people make it out to be he was also he was always doing mainstream stuff at the same time 
I don't know where I'm going with this. He did a lot of stuff. That's 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 it. I got. I, I'm not an expert on Gary Graver. I really don't know much about him beyond uh, knowing that he was a prolific cinematographer who worked with Orson Welles, did B pictures and pornographic films. He's but, done it all. Yeah, I don't know. He's lived the life. Yeah. Um, I really don't have anything else to say about Teenage Exorcist. I mean, this is the first film of the spooky season for me that we're watching. Um, well, of course, we just watched Killdozer. Oh, yes, we just watched it. We just for, watched for, for Phil's birthday in October. Aha. <laughs> yes. Not August. Um, but, yeah, so, Phil, what are your final thoughts on Teenage Exorcist? I thought this was kind of a slog, to be honest. It was... It was like a one-joke premise, like it was, you know, like mild snickers here and there for maybe the first 20 minutes, and then it just got stretched out a little too long for my liking. Okay. Kit, what are your final thoughts on Teenage Exorcist? It was fine. It was fine. Um, um, Like, the Teenage Exorcist himself was was kind of grating. I I didn't didn't, didn't enjoy him on screen, didn't enjoy the comedic stylings of... uh, What's this? Uh, Eddie Deason. Eddie Deason. From the opening credits, I thought like he'd be like thrust into the situation with like because like in the opening he's like holding two crucifixes. I'm like, yeah, they kind of have a fun, yeah, yeah. You, you figured he would be thrust into the situation like, oh my god, like I gotta fight the devil, and yeah, instead, which might have been fun, yeah. but they just kind of have a few weird horny scenes with him. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the star, Brink Stevens, Brink Stevens, uh, looks hot in this film. <laughs> so that's my final those are my final thoughts she's hot in many films well there you go yep. man she's got a sultry voice too just hearing her on the uh, the commentary mm-hmm. sexy <laughs> good i'm sure she'll be glad to hear that um <laughs> yeah for me like this one was fun uh it does it is one of those things like it's also like we're getting older and watching movies at night with dim lighting at home doesn't help like it started off and i was so game like it was so much fun i was so stoked like great opening song great opening like spooky music throughout the opening yeah, you were so enthusiastic at first. You're like, yes, this is like this is a great DBV movie, and then like your enthusiasm just took a nosedive. Well, it's it's one of those things. Like, I feel if it had been eighty minutes, it, you it were you been... were literally pumping your fist. Yeah, at the opening credits, <laughs> having never seen this film before or really heard about it until I saw it in, at uh, in a used DVD bin. Um, I think you had it right. Seventy sixty five minutes or seventy minutes at the most. I think eighty. You could have you could have made a tight eighty because like, absolutely you cut out some premise. shenanigans. Uh, you cut out some like the the post Eddie D's and arriving shenanigans. You tighten up the front a little bit because um, like there's certain things where it's like it's a bit confusing because it's like wait who is she possessed by? Is it the ghost? Is it the demon? There, where did the zombies come from? I, I like to like where, how she ends the conversation. Early on, she ends a conversation, a telephone conversation with her sister by telling a joke, kind of a bad dad a joke. Limerick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on, when they go to the basement, she's she's hanging with the ghouls and stuff, and she's Just trying to tell, tell the jokes. same joke. It's wonderful. Eh, yeah. it's it's good worth worth a chuckle. I will say, I I think this film, um, ah, it's fine. It's a fun it's a fun distraction. It's a few laughs and. Here's the thing. If I rented this uh, from the video store when I was 17, I would probably think it was great. So that's who it was made for. Um, 17-year-old Graham? Maybe not. Maybe someone else. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, it's not like that's, I think, a solid. It's all right from Death by Video. I'm, like... I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's Death by Video. Kit, you will be able to know we've been up. So I got up at 4 a.m. this morning. We uh, sorry for the lack of new episodes. We're gonna I'm gonna be dropping like three of these. Bomb, bomb, boom, we boom, do, boom. We've been busy. We've been busy. Graham's been making a film. Yeah. Uh, we were making a film this morning. I was up at 5 a.m. 
Yeah, it was an early morning trip to the Toronto Islands to shoot a sunrise thing. I might have dug You're a clean shaven. Yeah, I'm clean shaven for yeah. the haircut. Yeah, I dug. I can, uh, I can shave the mustache now. I dug a grave in that for that film in 20 minutes. It was pretty fast. It's funny there were some bystanders on the beach when you were finishing that grave. <laughs> just watching They're me shut. Like, uh, <laughs> and you're standing around in a my trench, trench coat, coat, looking like this is like an early morning, like dig your own grave and then I'll whack you. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it is the spooky season. It is my favorite season, Halloween. And already there's way too much Christmas crap in stores. I am sick of this. Seasonal creep is real, and it's all just to get your money. It's got nothing to do with the joy of Christmas. I actually like Christmas, but I like it in December. I don't like it in October. I like don't like it in November. I like it in December when it actually happens. You you want you want us you want us to be the, like Americans? No, Americans are already do, are doing it now. I thought they wait until Black Friday to do the Christmas. Crap. No, no, no. They like November for like October. They're already like they've got uh. Christmas stuff out now. Um, Hallmark launched a whole Halloween takeover thing where it's like, sorry, Halloween, Christmas is taking over. Freaking Hallmark. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hallmark can't encroach on the Halloween. I shouldn't. I, they, but, they can't encroach but, on the Halloween game, and they're mad. No, exactly. Well, they should though. I mean, you could they have a Halloween totally romance. Should, yeah. I wrote one back when I was working for a, a company that produced Christmas movies. I wrote a I wrote a treatment for a a Halloween romance. Yeah, about this, this uh, is for the name that shall not be mentioned. Yeah, let's not talk about okay. that. Yeah, yep. and I mean I worked on a movie that did get sold to Hallmark, so in that way I did kind of okay. work for Hallmark. But whatever, whatever, whatever. We're here tonight to talk about the amazing. Oh, also I'm Graham. The amazing. Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Lives. My favorite Friday the 13th film. We've already done part four on the podcast and Jason Goes to Hell. We did Jason Goes to Hell first and then we did part four uh, a while ago when we were doing a bunch of movies. Um, so this is my favorite one. It is... Your the, favorite movie of 1986. My favorite movie of 1986. It is The Birth of Zombie Jason. Uh, it is also the birth of, of uh, postmodern meta horror. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the interesting thing is that... Okay, so... Let's start at the beginning. Um, after the massive, massive success of Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, Paramount Pictures decided to continue the series with Friday the 13th Part 5, a new beginning. Part 5 was another massive su- success. However, the fans of the series didn't like the lack of Jason, and they also didn't like the direction of going and having Tommy Jarvis be the killer. They didn't like Roy? They didn't like Roy. But Roy, Roy is very dead at the end of Part 5. He is, but I mean, you could always bring him back. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Whatever. Um, Roy Lives doesn't quite have the same rank. Yeah. So producer Frank Roy Man- returns. Producer Frank Mancuso Jr. wanted to take the franchise in a new direction and away from the grim horror of parts four and five and the general sleaziness of part five. We all know. Yeah, yeah. I just watched that one recently, actually, in preparation for this movie. And uh, yeah. I mean, Reggie's a fun character, but there's the sleaze factor is up. I do recommend watching the Tommy Jarvis trilogy because, like, uh, Alex Ross Perry was recently on the Big Picture podcast where he was talking about how there's really no other series that has a micro trilogy within their within their films. You know, where it's like part four, five, and six of Friday the Thirteenth are their own trilogy of movies. Yeah, the Tommy Jarvis trilogy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll play by three different actors, but which we'll get to. And also, outside of Alice from Part One being killed off at the opening of Part Two, Tommy Jarvis is the only character to be in more than one Hall- uh, more than one Friday the Thirteenth film huh. as a, as a main character and not and not get killed off. Um. So after Frank Mancuso Jr. wanted to do this, enter writer-director Tom McLaughlin. So he was best known at the time for his horror film One Dark Night and also a series of comedy scripts around Los Angeles. He had also written for uh, Steven Spielberg's TV show Amazing Stories. I think he did two episodes of that. Um, So the only issue with hiring Tom McLaughlin is that he wasn't a fan of slasher films. Uh, He was much more a fan of the classic, you know, monster movies of um, 
of the Universal Pictures. So he took influence from like 1931's Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, and also the Hammer horror films of the 50s and 60s to create a much more gothic, a bit more supernatural version of Friday the 13th. Um, he also recognized that this was the sixth film in the franchise and that there would be more likely to come after it. So he introduced some postmodern elements, such as the James Bond intro, which is amazing. Yeah, that was that was kind of funny. Yeah, because what are you gonna do at part six? It's part six. It's a ludicrous thing to say that a franchise has reached part six. It was uh, it was the first of the major horror franchises to reach six, right? Halloween hadn't done part six yet. No, that was the curse of Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah that was yeah, that yeah. was ninety six um, or ninety five. And I mean, Nightmare didn't reach part six until that was 19- Freddy's Dead. I think yeah, nineteen ninety. Yeah. Freddy's Dead. Um, I mean, what else? Hellraiser six was way off. I don't even. Well, Hellraiser six was Hellseeker. I remember that was... That was like the late 90s, yeah? That uh, was 2003? Okay. Yeah. Were they in space at this point? The post-space. Post-space. Okay. Yeah, well, so he wow, went to okay. space in part four, and then part five was good. That was Inferno. That was directed by Scott Derrickson. And then part six was The Return of Christy uh, from... The first two movies? the first two movies. Yeah. Was, was she played by Ashley Lawrence? Did yeah, she it was Ashley Lawrence okay. Returned, yeah. Okay. I think, I think Leprechaun gets up to like seven or eight, but not, yeah. not until the late 90s. Early yeah, 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 yeah. It was when back they went, to the hood. Because he, like, he went to part four for Leprechaun. I think. I think part four he went to space, and then part five was in the hood, and then part six was back to back the, to the hood. back to the yeah. hood. Well, Leprechaun started in the nineties. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, with Jennifer Aniston. Yes. Oh yeah, her finest role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So he introduced like so. In addition to the James Bond intro, he also introduced. There's a comment made about. Anytime you see a weirdo in a mask, you know, it's, I've seen enough horror movies to know that anytime you see a weirdo in a mask, nothing good can happen. And actually, Kevin Williamson, the screenwriter behind Scream, uh, late, years later would tell McLaughlin that this film was actually a huge influence on Scream. Because it kind of showed like, oh, you can be parsmodum, postmodern and scary at the same time. You could also be parsmodum. Yeah. Um, so Tom McLaughlin, uh, he's directed four feature films that went theatrical, 1983's One Dark Night, 1986's Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, 1987's Date with an Angel, the weird movie about a guy that falls in love with, an, with a literal angel who's supposed to bring him to the dead, or uh, bring him to heaven, and then uh, 2001's The Unsaid. He would go on to direct a lot of television, including an episode of uh, Freddy's Nightmares, and he also directed four episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. In addition to that, he directed a lot of TV movies. There's, a, there's also a little sly reference to the Nightmare series in this, uh, in this oh, movie. Oh, yes, the child of, Nancy. Well, well, no, there's, uh, the child is like she, she dreamed. She was dreaming of a monster, and there was a lady named Nancy mm-hmm. in her dreams or something like that. And it's like, oh, hey. Hey, there it is. That's um, the first crossover sort of of the series. Yeah, true. So the film opens with uh, Tommy Jarvis, played by Tom Matthews, and Alan Hawes. Uh, who who uh, plays him in the fifth one? Because that guy is not John, very interesting. John Shepard. So John Shepard actually was initially approached to return for part six. However, after filming Friday the 13th Part 5, he actually became a born-again Christian and decided not to <laughs> pursue any more horror movies. That makes he sense. did He did appear in some mainstream stuff. I'm trying to remember what it was now, though, but I can't recall, like, right off the top of my head. But... Um, but yeah, so we've got uh, Tommy Jarvis and Alan going in the pickup truck, which was actually driven by uh, the main character. The blonde, I, 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 can't, I can't remember, remember her name. Man, hold on. Yeah, she's from part five. She drove the pickup truck, and now Tommy's driving it to go to Jason's grave to dig up his body and burn it because he's been having nightmares and seeing things. And he... Pam Roberts, played by Melanie Kinneman. Right. I think, wasn't she in, um, she was in, I think, I think she was in uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2. 
she's been in uh no. No, she was not in Slumber Party Massacre 2. I thought but she apparently was. Apparently she it says she's credited in Jason Lives, although I don't know, maybe we see a picture of her. So she shows up in the Friday the 13th reboot? Uh, mm, the reboot I don't think memories it's called. Oh, it must just it. be a okay. documentary. Yeah, that, that's the documentary, the long at the like 8-hour documentary. She's in the documentary Scream Queens and then the only other thing is Thunder Alley that she's in. But uh Anyway, she's in a different film altogether. But it does credit her in here. Hmm. Anyway. I thought for sure she was in... Uh... Probably one of the actresses I could see definitely being the... That's uh, one of the main differences as I noticed between the two films, mm -hmm. having watched them so close together, is that uh, in the fifth one, they show as many tits as they possibly can. Just any excuse for tits to pop out, they're popping. Yeah, and, um, and, this and the one, sixth Tom one, just none, none, none whatsoever. Yeah, it was the only Friday the Thirteenth up to that point. And There's I think even a sex it. scene where they could be showing tits, and she's just got her top off. I know because Tom reason. McLaughlin was just like, we really don't need. Like, it's it's one of those things. Like, um, he was asked to by the studio to like uh try and get some nudity into it but he just didn't really feel comfortable doing it it's a weird thing to be like hey so do you want to do the scene with your shirt off yeah yeah i can see that the movie's pretty much devoid of you know apart from like the sexual tension between uh, tommy jarvis and um megan and megan played by jennifer cook yeah uh let's talk a little bit about jennifer cook a, a likable actress yeah she's very good so she um she kind of started her career off doing like some television stuff. She was on the, the Guiding Light uh, soap opera from 1981 to 1983. Uh, she was in the VTV series from 1984 to 1985, which was a massive hit at the time. Uh, then she did Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. And then she did A Year in the Life, the t this TV miniseries in 1986. And that was it, basically, for her, um, for her role. She did appear in the Crystal Lake Memories uh, documentary. In, uh, and she appeared on Regis Philbin's Lifestyles TV series in 1985 oh. as herself. Um, but that's basically all we know about her. So the film starts off, let's let's get through the plot as quickly as we can. This, the film starts off with Tommy Jarvis and his friend Alan, played by Ron Palilio, who actually was in Welcome Back, Cotter, and he was also in Skate Town, USA. Nice. Yeah, he's an actor. He, he was giving off some, like, sweat hog energy, yeah. Yeah, well, his interesting thing is that he basically decided when he started his acting career that every time he appears in something, he is going to look completely different and almost unrecognizable. I don't know why he would decide something like that, but okay. He was also in Snake Eater. Doesn't want to be typecast. No, exactly. He was in Welcome Back, Cotter, Friday the 13th, Part 6, some movie called Hellgate from 1989. Um, Presumably a horror movie? I think so, yeah. He uh, was also in Dickie Roberts' former child star. I remember that. Um... He was in the Superman TV. Oh, this was not a, a show. Um, he was in Cagney and Lacey. Um, he was in Surf 2, the end of the trilogy, the movie that none of us have ever seen, but I kind of want to. Surf 2 is the end of the trilogy? And there's no part one, yeah. The movie oh. is called Surf 2, the I end of the trilogy. It, yeah. You, you were making a lot of references to this on our previous episode. Yeah. So... <laughs> So they're going there, and they're going to destroy Grace, Jason's grave, and everything that can go wrong does go wrong. They dig up the grave. He's a little maggoty mess. Uh, he's, a, he's a maggoty mess. Uh, and sure enough, lightning strikes. Yeah, so Tommy Jarvis stabs him with a, a, a metal fence post. He, he improvises. He's just mm -hmm. gonna. He's there to burn the body and destroy it, but once he sees the maggoty mess body, he's like, 
you know what? I'm going to stab it with a metal pole. Yeah, his, his, his post-traumatic stress disorder kicks in. Huge mess up by Tommy Jarvis. Just the biggest um, F up of the film. And then the, the pole gets struck by lightning. And much like Frankenstein, he is brought to life by electricity. So, eyes in perfect, uh, Jason's yeah. eyes in perfect health. He's got beautiful eyes. Beautiful green eyes. Yeah. Um, much like my own. And so they, they cover him in gasoline. They try And Tommy tries to light him on fire with a match, but it just starts raining instantly. Fortune does not smile on him. Poor Alan hits Jason with, with a uh, shovel from behind, and then Jason just punches his heart out. Alan didn't even want to be here. Yeah. And then Tommy runs away. Jason puts on the mask. We get the James Bond intro, and we are off to the races. Instead um, of firing a gun, Jason wags a machete. Yeah, he kind of chucks a machete. Slashes a machete. A machete. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Slashes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and Jason in this film is played by C.J. Graham, who, um, from what I recall... Was not like he was actually uh, the second actor cast as Jason in the film because they got rid of him initially and then are they there was another actor actor initially playing Jason and then he took over when that didn't work out he was a former military man I think he was a bar, local bartender they shot this film in, in Atlanta Georgia which is like one of the, which kind of kicked off the whole move to shooting everything in Georgia now like if you check out any movie any independent film it's all shot in Georgia yeah, tax credits or whatever they do there yeah 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 um, I I love CJ's uh, Graham's performance of Jason. I also like his last name, obviously, because my name is Graham. But um, he also has a, he has a nice butt. He gives Jason uh, some definition in that area. Yeah, no, no, no muscle atrophy for Jason. He just rises mm-hmm. out of that grave, charged by the energy uh, by the uh, lightning. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, it's yeah, like I like because he's he's not quite as slow moving or breathing heavy as Kane Hodder would do in in seven. In parts seven, eight, nine, and ten, um, I like Kane Hodder. I think he's fine, but to me, C.J. Graham, like he had that right level of menace and quickness, like where it's like he's he's metho- he's um, he stalks his prey. He's very purposeful in his motion, like motions. He, he never sprints or anything. No, he just briskly walks, and then sometimes hops out of a tree. <laughs> yeah, when he yeah. So then we go on. We meet. So Tommy Jarvis goes to the local sheriff station. Where we meet the sheriff, who is played by uh, not Donald Sutherland. No, it's David Kagan. So David Kagan, and like he's a very recognizable, and like the dialogue they have back and forth is awesome. And Tom McLaughlin has even said like he modeled this on like films of the 30s and 40s with like real rat-a-tat dialogue. There's like you know iron this punk or like you know uh, bring the noise to the cherry or like um, let's let's, uh, let's oh. To make a memory of this place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Real, real clever, like, rat-a-tat-tat dialogue. Not as clever as those films, obvi- obviously, but still great for a Friday the 13th film. Yes. Um, so, David Kagan, he had a fairly long career. His last uh, credit was in 2015. He did some soap opera stuff. He was on Santa Barbara, that soap opera in the 80s. He was on General Hospital. He was on The Young and the Restless. He was on Bones House. Um, he was on CSI. All my favorite shows. Yeah, I know. Kit's not joking at all. That's that's like 100 <laughs> percent real. He was in the 80s. He was on Remington Steel and Hill Street Blues. He got around. Yeah, the 18. I mean, Friday Thirteenth Part Six was his his only real mo- like big movie. Uh, he also appeared on Freddy's Nightmares. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the episode that um, where uh, what you call it. Um, Our director directed. Yeah, yeah. He was in Boris and Natasha, the TV movie, which I uh, remember quite wow, well. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That movie was, was this fun. a live action one? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, with Dave Thomas and Andrew Martin. Oh, gosh. Yeah, not uh, – Andrew Martin didn't play Natasha. That was Sally Kellerman. Oh. Dave Thomas played Boris Badenoff. Andrew Martin played Toots. I think she wound up playing – I think it just, was – Just no Rocky and Bullwinkle in this? Well, it was actually – so it was a live-action film, and the joke was at the end, it's like, oh, there's these two American spies who have been after us the whole time, codenamed Mouse and Squirrel. Oh. Yeah. It, it was a fun movie. I saw it on City TV in the late 90s. Wouldn't it be Moose and Squirrel? Moose and Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did I say mouse and squirrel? You did say mouse and squirrel. Whatever, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> so, uh, instantly the sheriff doesn't believe him whatsoever. Uh, no, he gets downright angry. Yeah. Although, to be fair, mm-hmm. I mean, Tommy Jarvis just busts in there, starts screaming about digging up a corpse, and it coming back to life and killing his friend. I wouldn't believe him either. Yeah. So. And the sheriff has his gun ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny how the he has this gun ready as soon as uh, Tommy opens the door. He's like, "Whoa!" I was pulling your head off there. Yeah, some clever dialogue. Um, and so basically, the sheriff puts him in a jail cell. And says, "Sleep it off." Um, and then overnight, we find that uh, Jason is like up to his old tricks, or he's. Well, there's that couple in the car yeah. in the in the in the old uh, punch buggy there. Yep, Elizabeth, who is actually played by the director's wife. Uh, so it was. God damn it. Internet is too slow. Nancy McLaughlin played Elizabeth, and the bad guy from Ghost played her partner in that film. I can't remember his name. Tony Goldwyn. Tony Goldwyn. Is he even credited? No, he's not credited in here. Oh, no, he is. He is. Yeah, he plays Darren. Tony. Yeah, the bad guy from Ghost. Um, The guy who sets up Patrick Swayze. Yeah, to get whacked so he can move on on this girl. Um,. So Jason kills him, and this is like where some of the meta stuff comes in. Uh, Elizabeth says, "Like anytime I've seen enough horror movies to know that anytime you see a weirdo in a mask, it's never good." They try to get away. Um, well, uh, I mean, uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, <laughs> guy from Ghost. He he pulls out a gun. He's got a revolver in the he's glove like, I'm box. Shoot ya! And she's like, "You're no dirty Harry. What are you doing?" Yeah, he's more like dirty Harry yet. Um, and so <laughs> I don't know. That joke was stupid. Um, <laughs> And uh, Jason just straight up murders him and throws him up over his shoulder in, like, one smooth motion. Then Elizabeth comes out. Uh, he smashes the front window of their car with his um, with the uh, steel piece of, or the iron gate piece. And she crawls out into a puddle and, like, she tries to, like, give him her wallet and her cash. But Jason doesn't want that. He stabs her with the thin- with the, the, the spike. And... and then you have this lingering shot where her credit cards fall out. and. Yeah. Her main credit card says American Excess. Yes, it's very much an American Express card, and it was solely put in with the with the joke of when the audience sees it, they'll shout out, "Don't leave home without it," because the American Express commercials were ubiquitous at the time, and it actually worked. When audiences first saw the film, they shouted out, "Don't leave home without it." it. it guaranteed, get a laugh if you're the first guy to say it for sure. Yeah. There's also a great uh, Alice Cooper soundtrack to this. Yeah, there's three Alice Cooper songs: Teenage Frankenstein. Uh, I think Ro- uh, no. Rock and Roll Summer, Hard Rock Summer. Yeah, Hard Rock Summer Camp or something like that. Yeah, and uh, there's also a song by Felony, uh, who are on the soundtrack, who actually appeared in our previous episode on the slasher film Graduation Day, which was in itself a Friday the 13th knockoff. They appeared in the roller disco scene in Graduation Day, which is a great scene, which famously had them play their song Gangster Rock for seven minutes straight, which I actually think was just an editing thing where they just like merged the song so that it sounded like it was seven minutes long. I would assume so, yeah. yeah. Um, so at this point, uh, we meet, um, Megan, who, who is played by Jennifer Cook and her friends, uh, Paula 
Sissy, and Court. And all great names for characters. <laughs> yeah, so they are all camp counselors at the now... It's now no longer uh, Camp Crystal Lake. It's Camp Forest Green after the massacres that occurred you know, several years before... Uh, the town has officially changed their name from Crystal Lake to Forest Green, which makes sense. You know, like, everyone associates Crystal Lake with all the massacres. They call it Camp Blood, and now it's Camp Forest Green. Cause Camp it's, Forest it's... Green, yeah. The timeline of the Friday the 13th series also gets kind of me- messed up a little bit because uh, between parts 2, 3, and 4, that's just one weekend. It's basically like two or three days of time passed. And then you jump forward in time to part 5. Tommy Jarvis is now a teenager. He's in the... The group home. A teenager, I'd, like almost a young adult, but yeah. I guess he could be. Uh... I think he was supposed to be like 15 in that. Uh, yeah, 80s man. casting. <laughs> and then he's clearly in his mid to late 20s in um, Friday the 13th, part 6. And then in part 7, it jumps for it's like, oh, like there's been no. Like the last Jason thing was like over 10 years ago. So, like, apparently part 7 is set in like the year 2000 or something. Or That's no, like even later. And then so, like, part then part 8 has got to be in like 2010. Wow. So. Which is odd because everyone dresses like it's 1989. That is strange. Because it's from 1989. Um, so we meet all the friends, and this is where Megan first lays eyes on Tommy, and she is instantly smitten with this attractive young man that her father is locked up in jail. He's got eyes for her, too. Yeah. He, he takes time from his ranting and raving about the uh, the man that he mm-hmm. accidentally, the killer, the serial killer that he accidentally resurrected. Yes. Uh, to check out her ass. Exactly. It's a nice one. Um, and so at that point... Um, and the, the sheriff does the the typical father thing where it's like, don't you talk to him. He's crazy. He's bad for you. Stay away from him, which only makes the girl want him more. It's the classic bad boy thing, which actually I don't think it exists in real life. I think that was a movie trope of like, oh, the women want the bad boys. Except in this movie, Tommy Jarvis is the good boy. He is he's the good boy, but he comes off as a bad boy because uh, she first meets him and he's in jail. He's in jail. And he has a denim jacket. He's like a hot, dirty criminal. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, uh, they go off to camp, they bring up the fact that, like, their friends Elizabeth and, um, and Darren haven't shown up, it's like, oh, I'll take a look, I'll call, I'll call over to the station in Carpenter, oink, wink, and, uh, What's see that a wink, in. wink to? John Carpenter. Ah. Yeah. There's also references to Cunningham Road. There's Karloff's, uh, yeah, the, the gas station. Karloff's general, like, store or whatever. Yeah. yeah so there, there's some, some winks. Which and again, this is before every uh, geek had a camera and a, an editing software to make films where every single character is named after a horror movie director. Um, it's like Final Destination. Uh, yeah, and so pieces. so from there, uh, we now are out with this like corporate paintball retreat going on, and Jason just ruins this whole office's day. Yeah, I mean they're they're they're, they're in their army fatigues. At first, it's kind of presented like these are just hunters in the woods. But then we find out that it's a corporate retreat. It's, um, it's paintball meets capture the flag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then once you, you got to wear these uh, the headbands on your. Once you get shot, you yeah. got to wear these headbands that say "dead" yeah. on them. Dead, um, like it's like dead repeated multiple times across mm-hmm. the headband. And much to uh, much to Jason's uh, uh, surprise and uh, delight, yeah, one of them happens to be uh, wielding a machete. Yeah, he's a real like survivalist. Takes it real serious. So he's got like a full on. He's already been killed. He's pissed because a lady yeah. killed him. A lady shot. They shouldn't she, let women. Yeah, she should be in the kitchen. Yeah, and then Jason, being the feminist that he is, that's, that's right. Rips that Woke dude's Jason. arm. And, yeah, he rips that dude's arm right off and gets a machete. That's true. He's very anti cop and very pro women. Yeah. Well. Well, not... okay, not. <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, 
And so from there, uh, he wipes out this whole team, and so now he's adequately fatigued and ready to go. Um, so now we're moving forward. Uh, the Overnight, the groundskeeper at the cemetery has filled back in Jason's grave because we should point out that Tommy Jarvis's f- friend, Alan, fell into Jason's casket. And so the, 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 the I don't want to say the crypt keeper, but the groundskeeper. The alcoholic groundskeeper. Yes, who, who's drinking a full-on bottle of whiskey or something, a Mickey. He uh, fills it back in before the before daylight, so that or before anyone shows up, so that he doesn't get in trouble. And he even at one point says, "Like, who would do this? Who would think it'd be like fun to like dig up a grave?" And then he looks directly at the camera and says, "Some people have a sixth sense of entertainment." He's talking to us, the yeah, viewers. Yeah, I know, and we love it. <laughs> um, so from there, and now uh, the sheriff and his deputy uh, drive Tommy to the city limits. Uh, and they do the whole thing of like, this is like, we're going to drive you out and then you just keep on going. But he veers off the road and goes to the graveyard. And then it leads to a foot chase through the graveyard, which was actually a confederate. The graveyard in real life was a confederate graveyard. And Tom and they weren't allowed to. Initially, Tom McLaughlin wanted to do a car chase through the graveyard. But the graveyard was like, you got to be respectful to these confederate soldiers who died. They will come back and haunt us. And, yeah. you know. I know. Well, we all saw Charlottesville. <laughs> yeah. Charlottesville will um, rise again. Exactly. Um, so they have a foot chase through the graveyard and the sheriff tackles Tommy to the ground and Tommy's like, just look at Jason's grave. And then he looks over and says like, well, I guess he must've gotten chilly last night and pulled the dirt back over himself. And this is when we find out that yes, the groundskeeper has filled in the grave and he is, uh, now everyone still thinks he's crazy. So at this point, the sheriff like puts him in handcuffs, drives him to the city limits Puts him in his truck and says, "Like, get out! Like, cool. if I see you again." We also have that good, uh, good edit where the uh, the, the groundskeeper because he's like, "You got to dig up the grave, man! You yeah. got to dig up the grave!" Oh, and then yeah. the uh, the groundskeeper, I forget the exact line, but he's like, uh, "Dig up the grave? What does he think? I'm a fool!" And no, no, cut- no, no, no. He says, "Like, do, do, the, do all these people think I'm a fart head?" Yeah, fart head. That's what he says. Yeah, and do all I- these people think I'm a fart head? And then it cuts to all the kids going, yay! Because <laughs> uh, the So the kids have shown up. The counselors are there. The main counselors who are supposed to be running the camp have not shown up. So all these like counselors in training are like running the show and trying to keep the kids entertained and hyped up until the real counselors show up. However, unfortunately, they are dead in their Volkswagen Beetle. Um, this is also where um, the one part of this movie that is off-color and has not aged well is when the male counselor makes a reference to a female indigenous person that is oh yeah yeah well you're saying this is the uh john travolta's cousin here his his nephew yeah his nephew it's it's kind of like uh it's 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 a fun little scene uh, besides the fact that it hasn't aged that well but he's uh he's real quick uh quick fire going over the details of um i don't know some sort of uh, deal with rocks and stacking rocks. That, yeah, uh, it was an Indian people. marker or something. Yes, exactly. He's like, oh, you know, when the chief wants to leave his wife, he, uh, he leaves. Wife or his or whatever. Ugh, don't say that word. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. We'll bleep that. Uh, when, the, when the chief wants to leave his wife, he, like, leaves a pile of rocks so his son can follow him. I don't know why I'm doing Rodney Dangerfield. Um, well, he does have kind of like a... Like Danny a, Zuko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, he's going to... His son will find the rocks and then he'll knock the rocks over so his mother won't follow him no more. And um, the kids, this is where we realize the, all the kids in this movie are hilarious because one of them says, like, if this is as exciting as this as it gets, our summer is going to be real boring. Yeah, the kids are also uh, getting into existentialism. They're, they're yeah, reading, these are some really angsty kids. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're reading, reading no some exit. John Paul Sartre. Yeah. Sartre. Yeah, it's great. Um, 
And then later on, when the the kids are hiding underneath the beds, one of the kids turns when Jason is like attacking the camp. One of the kids turns to the other kid and says, "Like, so well, what did you want to be when you grew up?" <laughs> Wisecracking little ragamuffins. Yeah, because they're just mulling over how they're gonna die. Yeah, they're all convinced like, "Yeah, this is the end for us." But I, but pretty but pretty blase about dying yeah. too. <laughs> they also yeah, dive they under the bed like ah, <laughs> flying like Superman. But as you said, uh, Jason's not out for the kids. No, so Tom McLaughlin theorized that Jason wouldn't want to hurt kids because he himself was a tortured child, and so he wouldn't want to inflict that on another child. Just wants to, he just wants to give them PTSD. And Which, terror. they really should have brought that up during Freddy vs. Jason, where it's like, Jason doesn't hurt kids, Freddy does. Yeah, but they didn't. Um, so at this point... Jason has the moral upper hand. Yeah. So at this point, um, Megan goes back into town to talk to her father, um, and her father... Uh, says like he she's basically trying to talk him into like hey like you got to believe my you know my friends blah 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 uh and so then um we get we get another sexy kill in there there's that uh, that couple out there oh yeah uh, so he, he's proposing to his wife also the the the, the groundskeeper the, bites uh, yeah. it yeah so they get knocked Jason bumps them off like in pretty quick succession he kills the groundskeeper with his own whiskey bottle that's well, it's, and it's funny because the groundskeeper had thrown the bottle away he's like oh charlotte he calls his whiskey charlotte yeah. You're going to be the death of me. And he throws the whiskey bottle away, and he's waiting for it to hit the ground, but it doesn't because Jason caught it. Breaks it and then stabs him in the neck. Yeah. And then the couple try and get away on their motorcycle, but Jason just stabs right between two. Almost a callback to Friday the 13th Part 2, the uh, the old spear through the, the, the couple in coitus. Yeah, he he gets a lot of uh, multiple kills. Like even earlier with the uh, the corporate retreat, he yeah. beheads three people with yeah. one machete swing. He's making up for lost time. Yeah, <laughs> he's been in the ground for like a good decade to fifteen years. He's got to D- catch up. Didn't decide to change his life. Gets a second shot at, uh, at nope. the old can, and he's the like, hockey um, mask goes right back on. He's right back in those. Back woods. to the old me. Yeah, gotta get... Tommy gave him back his mask. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Tommy Jarvis did bring his mask. Um. So where do we go from there? Oh, yeah. So basically, Megan's back at the... At well, Clout and his uh, girl are getting it on. In oh, the, uh, yes. Court, you mean. Court, I'm Clout. sorry. Yes. Clout. I called him Clout. Court. Yes. Tom Tom Fridley plays Court. Um, this is the same guy that was uh, talking uh, talking in the... Uh, he was with the woods, in the woods with the kids. Talking the casual yeah, racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So he had an interesting career. I mean, like, he's obviously... He was in Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge in 1989. He played the role of Justin... Um, he was in Summer Camp Nightmare in 1986. Uh, he was in Iron Eagle in 1986. He did a lot of stuff in 1986. Um, he was in The Karate Kid. He played Alan, who I'm guessing is one of the bad guys. Um, he wound up appearing in the TV series LA Heat in 1997. He was in Face Off in 1997, the the John Woo film. He was in Mad City, the John Travolta, uh, Dustin Hoffman joint. So he's just kind of riding John Travolta's uh, coattails a little bit, huh? I guess so. You know what? He probably did, yeah. Um, Why not? I'm trying to think about what else he was in here. That was, I mean, he was in Charles in Charge. He was in 21 Jump Street. If, if my um, uncle was John Travolta, I'd be getting some film roles. Too. Yeah, he had a gap from uh, 2009, which his role was, Oi, V, they, my son is gay. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that was 2009, and then his most I'm, guess, I'm guessing he was like Scott Baio's stunt double on Charles and Charles Charge. No, he had a, he had a, his character's name was Spitball. Okay, that uh, sounds about right. Um, and then he uh, his most recent role was in 2022 in the TV series Corner Report, where he plays Court Andrews. Interesting, Ooh. I wonder if it's a callback. 
I wonder if it's like one of those shows, kind of like Psych, where they did an homage to like a. a Wait, did you say Coroner Report or Corner Report? Coroner's Report. Okay. Yeah. The Corn Report. The Corn Report. The Corn Report. <laughs> the um, report. So it's Court, and then it's also Darcy DeMoss plays Nikki. That's the girlfriend. So the interesting thing about her is that she was originally cast in Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. Um, she was cast to be the girl that gets killed in the woods with the boyfriend, um, and she gets a gets a pair of um, scissors. Well, it's shears? like gardening shears yeah, gardening stuck shears. into her eyes. Yeah, yeah. And so the interesting thing about that is, like, in that film, uh, the skeezy director uh, wanted her to take her shirt off. And she was like, well, we haven't negotiated this. If we want to do this, we got to talk to my agent because if there's a nudity bump, if I do nudity, I get paid more. He freaked out, fired her. But because he fired her because uh, without cause, she got paid for the role. So then she was cast in Friday the 13th Part 6. The producers in advance negotiated with her to do a nude scene. And then Tom McLaughlin didn't do it, so she actually got paid extra twice. She got paid for Friday the 13th Part 5 without actually appearing in it, and then she got paid to do nude scene in Part 6 without actually doing any nudity. Good for her. Yeah. Get that money from those old pervs. Um, so this is a great scene. Uh, this is in a uh, Winnebago, and this is also features the song um, by Felony, and it also features Teenage Frankenstein by Alice Cooper. So uh, Jason kills the power to the Winnebago from the from the from the outlet, and they decide we got to get out of here because they see that the the cable has been like uh, frayed, and they're like, let's get out of here, right? Let's make this place a memory. That's when he says that. Yeah. So they go back inside, uh, and Court drives away while listening to Alice Cooper, and then Nikki hilariously falls back down into the into the Winnebago because Court's driving like a maniac. However, Jason is already on board. He drags her into the bathroom, and then he pushes her face into the wall of the Winnebago, doing the impossible thing of creating uh, like face, an yeah. impression of her screaming through the other side of the Winnebago like aluminum siding wall. It's very thin walls, apparently. Yeah. At this point now, Tommy calls the police station to warn. Well, he's also got some books. He got a book on the occult. He got How to Talk to the Dead. He got a book called The Living Dead. And he's skimming through the occult book he's, to try and figure out how to like get Jason to go to his eternal rest. He's reading the first chapter and the last chapter as yeah. you do, you know. Just skimming through it fast. Um, so he calls the police station. However, um, the sheriff and the deputy have both left, so it's just Megan, and she mans the phone. Uh, she picks up, and because at this point, I always love how sparsely run these sheriff's offices are. It's just like two it's people. a town of like maybe like <laughs> like two fifty at max. Um, but there are other police. There is it like, used to be a population of 500 yeah. before Jason was raised. Yeah, he's called the population. He's, he's whittled it down. But the thing is, like, there is, like, a bigger police force out there. There's, like, the state police. Like, he, like this is the local town sheriff, and there's, like, the actual state police who they deal with quite a bit. Um, so, but at this point, uh, there was a report of they found Elizabeth and the other guy, Darren, uh, in their vehicle, and so the sheriff goes out to investigate, and initially they all think, oh, it's Tommy Jarvis trying to prove that Jason exists. So Megan stays at the police station. She gets a call from Tommy, and she's like, my dad's after you, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you gotta believe me. I'm not doing it. I'm trying to stop Jason. It's Jason. The classic wrong man yeah. plot. I know, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you realize you're trying to tell someone that for the first time in history, you've defied the laws of nature and resurrected a human being through through lightning. Most people are gonna not gonna take that like at face value. Yeah, maybe go with like an, a different story. Like it's a different guy. It's not me, but it's a guy. Yeah, who... some guy who looks like Jason moves like him and might have been in his grave. You know. Yeah. But no. Um. So she agrees to meet him, but they have to team up. So like she's of like, course. if you if you drive around in your truck, you'll get flagged instantly. But if we go around in my car, 
you, I can drive with you with my he- with your head between my legs. She's got a sweet little red red ride there too. Yeah, I thought it was a Mustang, but I think it's it's not. Yeah, I'm not a car guy, unfortunately. I was trying to trying to clock it. It might be a, a Trans Am or a I don't know a Chevy of some sort. I I can't tell. Um, so they're driving, and he's got some stuff because he's hanging out at Carlisle. So he's they got like chains and a big rock and some gasoline because he's gonna like he basically after skimming through the occult book realized we need to return Jason to his original resting place, which is the Crystal Lake. Lake. Yeah. Yep. So they're going to go to the camp to try and do it. However, all hell's breaking loose. The police have found more uh, bodies. They find the, the paintballers. And after a car chase in which uh, Megan continuously shoves Tommy's face into her, her crotch. crotch yes. um, and uh, he, gets, he gets a good look. Like he's, yeah, but he's, he, keeps trying to be like, he keeps trying to be like, uh, I got to get up. And she's like, no, no, stay down here. And like just shows his face back down. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, this girl knows what she wants. Um, so then after that, they run into her father, and then Tommy gets put back in jail. The deputy's left in charge. And it's, it's a bad look when he, uh, he has to raise his face from, from her lap. Yeah. To be like, huh? I'm caught? Oh, no. <laughs> Full on deer in headlights. While this is also happening, Jason has, like, now finally reached Camp Crystal Lake, now known as Camp Forest Green. And he offs Sissy pretty quickly, and Paula is basically out hanging around. Um, yeah, he uh, twists uh, Sissy's head off. I yeah, believe, yeah. Does, does a full 360 on it. Uh, Chrissy, he gets with the machete, which we don't see her end. But it's we see the aftermath, which is quite gruesome. Oh, it's just blood all over the cabin, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the kids know something's up, but they're still kind of like hiding from it. And like Jason at one point does go in and sees Nancy, but Nancy was having a nightmare about him before, so she kind of thinks maybe I was dreaming. Now, the cops at this point, um have gotten to or the sheriff has gotten to the camp and he's like meets the kids and he's like okay go inside go underneath the beds and hide while we figure out what's going on now at this point back at the precinct uh tommy jarvis and megan concoct a plan like we're gonna cause a distraction i'll get the sh- the deputy's gun and this is where they smooch for the smooch smooch for the first time the deputy's got a fancy gun too he's got like a video game gun it's got well like a sight it has on an, it. it has an early laser pointer yeah. on it and, like, he famously tells Jeremy Jarvis, wherever the red dot goes, ya bang. <laughs> yeah, he does say that, yes. Yeah. And then, so basically, like, Megan and him start making out through the bars. He gets up to be like, hey, kids, stop doing that. And uh, Megan grabs the gun from him and points it at him. And then Tommy says to him, like, remember, wherever the rod- red dot goes, ya bang. Um, that's like the bazinga of the 1980s. <laughs> ya bang. Ya bang. Um, and so they lock up the deputy in, and then they race off to Crystal Lake as well to to basically stop Jason. So the cops show up. Jason wrecks them, like, fast. Like, there he just, he takes them out. Except for the sheriff who, like, you know, initially hits him with a couple shotgun blasts, which seem to put him down, but then he keeps getting up. Kind of like, he's like, I'm better than Michael Myers. I can take shotgun blasts and walk, like, just sit up right away. Um, I, the sheriff's a feisty one, you know, like, he's, yeah. he's, he's knocking him down. Yeah, he does a full-on slam tackle. Yeah, it's like a slam tackle. Mm-hmm. And this dude's probably about like 5'7 and 160 pounds. Yeah, he's not a big man, but Jason certainly is. And he's got uh, supernatural lightning strength, Jason yeah. does. Oh, yeah. He's super strong. Well, we'll get to that. So, Jason, or sorry, Tommy Jarvis and Megan get to the camp. They see the kids. They're like, okay, hide under the beds again. Um, and and Tom, the kids do like these neat little dives right yeah. under the beds. Like. And uh, 
So Megan is like kind of like really terrified. She's like, where's my dad? My dad should be here. So she starts screaming out to him. Tommy goes and starts um, – we should also point out like Jason kills one of the cops with a lawn dart. The other one he just crushes his head with his hands. Um, and there was another interesting cut that Kit pointed out was that after he gets to the cop with the lawn dart, it cuts to a dartboard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Some, some clever editing Symbolism. here. Some, some filmmaking is yes. going on. The mise-en-scene. <laughs> I know Godard was in France just being like, it's magnificent. <laughs> it's magnificent. A tear, a tear yes. dropping from his eye. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. I'm just as good as Jerry Lewis. Yes. <laughs> um, that is how Godard uh, laughed. No, he didn't laugh like that. By the way, R.I.P. Godard. I'm not sure if we've said it yet, but he passed away. He is my favorite of the Nouvelle Vogue. Um, New Vague. Whatever. Um, so, so Megan is screaming out for her for her father. This kind of alerts Jason. Then her father says, "No, focus on me." And he like kind of wrestles Jason to the ground. He's like hitting him with a log. He's hitting him with like right in the mask with a. Um... He's going at him. He also shot him in the head, and Jason just shrugged it off. You got a, you got him right a yeah, bullet a bullet hole right in the old uh, honky mask. Yeah, and uh, so he's got a rock, and he's just pounding it into Jason's face. And Jason just calmly grabs his upper body and folds him backwards in half which is not a natural way for the body to fold no so instant death uh at this point well let's hope so yeah he's not just there like (laughs) oh my god um at this point tommy jarvis is in uh, the boat and he's got um he's got the gasoline he's got a rock and he's got a chain um and not much of a plan no he's just i'm gonna wrap the chain around jason's (laughs) neck and then throw the rock overboard and and sink him to to the bottom of the lake Megan goes to check on the kids because Jason has, like, ripped through the door. The kids are freaking into the cottage. The kids are freaking out. Megan goes to see what's up. Jason well, walks I mean, through. Tommy yeah. is like, go back. Go back with the kids. Yeah. You can't come with me on this one. Yeah. And then, uh, we and then they start the kids screaming. Scream, and so she does run back to the kids. And he's like, no, Don't Megan, me. no. Yeah, because he doesn't want her to get killed. Because he knows that Jason is a force of nature that will just destroy everything in his path. Um. And from there, Jason smashes out through the window. Now he's after Megan, and he grabs Megan. And he actually starts like crushing her head. But Tommy calls out, "No, no, it's me you want." And Jason remembers that's that little bastard that cut my that got me with the machete and killed me. And so he goes after Jason, after Tommy, and like it's a really cool scene because Jason just walks straight into the water, doesn't even like try to swim. It's just like do 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 underwater. <laughs> Tommy calls him a pussy. Yeah, that's great. Come on, you <laughs> pussy. And Jason's like, well, you can't call me that. I'm not a pussy. I'm Jason Voorhees, man. I came back from the dead, dude. Yeah, I killed 75 people. I mean, if they did continue with the part five lineage, it would be Jason versus Jason. Yeah, with Roy. Yeah. But nah. Or with Tommy in the mask. It would be funny if Roy pops up at this point. Yeah. <laughs> ah! And then Jason just swipe, like just bats him into a tree. Get away, you imposter. Um, so at this point, now Jason and uh, and Tommy tussle in the water. Uh, Tommy throws some gasoline around and lights it on fire to create the lake of fire. Uh, and Jason jumps up and into the boat and crashes through the boat, but Tommy manages to get the, the noose of chain link around Jason's neck, and Jason sinks down into the water. However, he grabs a hold of, of Tommy and like holds him down until he passes out. Megan now runs and jumps into the water. like She just belly flops straight into the water, just goes for it. Yeah, not very graceful. But, but she's there to do a mission. She grabs the part of the boat that has the, the onboard motor attached, starts up the onboard well, motor. she first gets Tommy, Tommy sort of. And yeah. then uh, Jason grabs her foot. Right, right, to try and drag her down. And then she shows her industrialness by grabbing the out the part of the boat with the outboard motor. She pulls the ripcord, gets the outboard motor going, and just jams it straight into Jason's neck. 
And Which we, he doesn't like. He doesn't like yeah, this. Yeah, we think he's dead because he stops moving. She gets Tommy to shore. She performs CPR. Tommy's great. The kids are alive. Yay, we survived. Oh, God, but, but all my friends and father are dead, so now I'm going to be <laughs> dealing with a lifetime of PTSD. Um, and then we cut to a pristine, nice day at Crystal Lake. We go below the water. Jason's eyes open. And then we get that great Alice Cooper song as the credits roll, and that was Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. You got to think uh, the the following day when, when Tommy really does explain to Megan how he was responsible for Jason coming back. It was a big oopsies on his part. And now I have to go back to this halfway house where I live? <laughs> She's probably going to be like, maybe this relationship won't work out. Yeah, I'm on, a, I'm on a ton of medication, just so you know. <laughs> like a ton of medication. I have psychotic episodes. Um we should point out that I had the, the chance to briefly talk to Tom Matthews, the guy who played Tommy Jarvis, uh, a few weeks ago at Toronto's own Horrorama horror horror convention. Uh, he seemed like a nice, affable guy, but it's one of those things where like this was like 35, 37-ish years ago. Also, so, you didn't ask him any uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> no, I asked him Albert Pune questions because he was in like 11 <laughs> Albert Pune movies. And his answer to the same thing, I was like, that man was crazy. We shot that movie in two days. And so I asked him, like, well, what about, you know, Crazy, or not Crazy 6, uh, Mean Guns? He's like, that movie was five days. It was insane. We had Christopher Lambert for like an afternoon. God, God bless Albert Pune, our pat- the patron saint the patron of our saint, uh... Yes, we miss Albert Pune. We're going to be doing more Albert Pune soon. I got Ticker. I got a bunch of Albert oh, Pune nice, movies. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, I just have to dig him up again. But uh, And I also asked him about working on Dangerously Close, which is the movie he did right after this, which was Albert Pune's like, a studio movie. And I kind of asked, like, so Albert Pune was still in the studio system. He still had budgets. Was it still, like, craziness? He's like, oh, yeah, it was insane. Like, Albert Pune, he made movies his way. God bless him. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk about Tom Matthews for a little bit. Uh, let me wear my notes on him. Uh, he first came to prominence playing the role of Freddy in 1985's The Return of the Living Dead. He followed that up with Albert Pune's Dangerously Close, which we've covered on the podcast. He would go on to appear in ten more Albert Pune films, including Alien from L.A., Blood Match, Nemesis, Kickboxer for the Aggressor, Blast, Mean Guns, Crazy Six, and many more. He also appeared in the 1990s ER television series. His acting career actually slowed down in the early 2000s, and he started a construction company. Uh, he, and he wound up doing the massive remodel of Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne's house in Los Angeles that they then wound up using on their TV show. Wow. Uh, yeah, he famously told the story of, like, he had to redo their door, like, seven times. And it was a massive custom-made door with, like, a, a fist for a, for a hand, uh, like, which they did, like, custom carve it out of, like, bronze. And he's like, it was just ridiculous. But, but the, he said they were nice. Um, so he's returned to acting in recent years, uh, playing the role of Tommy Jarvis again in the fan-made films Never Hike Alone, Never Hike in the Snow, and Never Hike Alone 2. He also returned to play Tommy Jarvis in the Friday the 13th video game, which was popular a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. I have. I played it once, and the thing is, like, you gotta play with friends, and I think that's You do. That's it's an key. online game. I, I played it once or twice. It, it is yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, and so the thing is, in that film, in that, uh, show, or in that game... If a character dies and then another character finds the radio and fixes the radio, they can call for help and Tommy Jarvis will come at will come in and then the character who the player who died will then control Tommy Jarvis. And only when you have Tommy Jarvis in the video game can you actually do a Jason kill. But you have to do a whole bunch of stuff. You have to like find the his his like cot his shack. You have to get a female character to put on his mother's sweater. You have to like knock his mask off and then you have to have Tommy Jarvis shoot him with a shotgun. A whole a bunch lot. of nonsense. Um so yeah, and that's that's Tom Matthews. He's one of my favorite on-screen presences. I, I love him whenever he shows up. He, he was great and dangerously close. He is fantastic in Return of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead Two, which is a movie I am not a big fan of, but he is great in that film. 
Um, so yeah, just just a great all-around actor. Um, let's talk about some of the trivia behind uh, Jason Lives. Well, you talked about a bit of the trivia. Yeah, I did a bit. Um, this we, we mentioned how this is the only film in the series not to feature any nudity, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I like boobs, but you know. We also said it didn't initially do well at the box office. Yeah, they're it's not. Kind of a, it's not a bit a of a flop. Not a not a total flop. No, it made nineteen million dollars, which now I think a film made for six million getting nineteen million dollars at the box office. Would be, uh, that's a hit. No. Yeah, that's an eight twenty. That's like, hit. It's like a Blumhouse hit. Uh, no, Blumhouse films they tend to make uh, fifteen above. Okay. Yeah. But um, that's, that's, that's an A24 hit. Um, so the little girl who keeps having nightmares in the film is called Nancy, which has been interpreted by many fans as a nod to um, Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. I would assume so, because she says she's having nightmares. However, director Tom McLaughlin said he actually named the little girl over after his wife, Nancy McLaughlin, who plays Elizabeth in the film. Okay, man. So yeah. I, It can work both ways. It can be both. Yeah, so we, as we point out, the blue pickup truck that Tommy drives is the same truck that Pam drives on Friday the 13th Part 5. Um, so actress Carrie Noonan, who played Paula, so she actually went into audition for a film called Birthday Bash, in which a serial killer named Ethan goes up against a girl with telekinesis powers. And while auditioning, she asked the producers, hey, is this Friday the 13th? I was already in one of these. And she was correct. Birthday Bash was actually the fake working title for Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. And Ethan was the pseudonym given to Jason in the script in order to protect the film from press during production. Let's actually look into Carrie Noonan's... Like, she had a small role as Paula. Not a small role, but, like, I really dug her performance. So let's dig into uh, her filmography a little bit. She was in Family Ties, St. Elsewhere. Uh, she was in the movie Hot Moves as Wendy. She was in an episode of Murder, she wrote. She was in the 1980s reboot of the Twilight series. She was in the 1985 show Misfits of Science, starring a young Courtney Cox. She made an appearance in Mr. Belvedere. Um, oh. And then Jason Lives... And then she was in an episode of Knott's Landing. She was in a, several episodes of China Beach. She had a run in the 90s on Days of Her Lives. And then her last uh, credit on IMDb was the 1996 TV movie adaptation of the book The Late Shift, where she played David Letterman's girlfriend. Neat. Yeah. So the original script also contained material that alluded to Jason's father, which to date remains the closest the series has ever come to shedding some light on the mysterious character. In the script, Pamela's headstone is next to Jason's, a reference to the fact that someone paid to have Jason buried, explaining why he was not cremated, as the mayor said in Friday the 13th Part 5. As well as this, there is a final scene in which Jason's father visits his son's grave, seemingly aware of the fact that Jason is not inside it. These scenes were never filmed, but made it into the film's novelization. In the 2000... <laughs> there was a novelization? Oh yeah, every film got a novelization yeah, that's back true, then. True. That's how I have the Omen Part 2 novelization. I do want to read the Friday the 13th novelizations because they're all based on the like you know the original scripts. I, I do believe, though, they, they mention Jason's father and Jason goes to hell. Yeah. He does get brought up. Yeah, a little bit, but it's just that movie. We don't talk about that movie. <laughs> just picturing some kid like, writing their book report on Jason Lives. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might oh, have happened. So this one was actually the first in the series that did not place first at the United States box office during opening weekend. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. That's that blows. I mean, and I love this movie. This was probably like probably Top Gun was stealing all its thunder. Probably yeah, the original Top Gun was out. Um, so Tom McLaughlin was actually offered the chance to direct Scream in the mid nineteen nineties, which Wes Craven eventually accepted. He declined though, but during the process, he met Kevin Williamson, who admitted that he was that the fantastically self aware Part Six was an influential film for him on his path to writing Scream. Uh, as we know, Jason bringing Jason back was a directive delivered to the producers from Paramount. So Paramount Pictures themselves were like. We're embarrassed as hell of these Friday the 13th movies, but we need them to keep bringing in the money. 
Yeah, so Siskel and Ebert did not like these movies at all. No. We're trying to, I think, calling on Paramount to... To stop doing to it. To stop doing it. They actually doxed... It's a, it's a boycott, yeah. Yeah, well, they, they doxed the producers of the film, Oh, I remember too. that, yeah. Yeah. Just openly. Um... So the final scene to be shot was the crashing of the RV. Director Tom McLaughlin was terrified during filming as there could only be one take, and the crashing made the scene incredibly dangerous for C.J. Graham, who played Jason. Although it remains unclear why Graham would be in the van when it flips over, as his character is not seen until after it flips comes to a stop. For being somebody who's worked on a lot of sets, there are sometimes very dumb reasons why you do stuff, and that sounds like something where it's like, well, Jason has to be inside because we might see him. You wouldn't see him. Um, and you don't. Yeah. You know what? Everything else is just kind of like it is what it is. This I'm just I'm not going to read. Graham any more is tired. Folks. I'm not going to read any more trivia. But I love this movie to death. So let's move on to final thoughts. Phil, what are your final thoughts on Friday the Thirteenth Part Six? Jason lives. You know what? The second viewing has improved quite a bit. Because uh, you did not like it initially, did you? I didn't. I wouldn't say I disliked it, but I was quite apathetic towards it. I think I was. I binge watched a few Friday the Thirteenth movies at the time, and. Um, I was just kind of like, eh, this is kind of dull. And like, I thought the meta stuff was kind of eye rolling at the time, but I found it a lot more amusing this time around. And uh, I appreciated the craft of this movie. Uh, it's nicely, briskly paced, well filmed, uh, really clever editing. Uh, the jokes land. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's, a I, it's a solid, fun movie. I feel like this is. It, a- it embraces its cliches. Yeah. I feel like this is the Friday the 13th film I could show my parents. No, totally. Cool. Yeah, there wouldn't be any awkward moments where some, yeah. some lady is removing her top. Yeah. Yeah, like most Jason movies I do find pretty dull, but this is like a really fun one. Like I, I really like, I find the final chapter a lot of fun as well. But Yeah, yeah. So these two are the ones that stand out. And, and I, I, I do have a soft spot for New Blood, but not to the same extent. No, yeah. New New Blood was interesting. I mean, it had Carrie versus Jason, which yeah. was kind of cool, but like it wasn't nowhere near as fun as no, this movie. No, not at all. But we love John Carl Buechler, who directed Rest in Peace. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's cool. better in a theory than, than in an execution. execution yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got Terry Kaiser. Which yeah, is, you know, Bernie. Guy. Yeah. Who killed Bernie? Jason. Jason. Um, all right, Kit, what are your final thoughts on Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives? Uh, much the same as uh, as Phil. I, I An improvement on uh, on 5, which I didn't hate. I think I'd, I'd give that one two and a half stars, but uh, this one's uh, more improved. I, I, I enjoyed the film craft and the attempt at, uh, you know, just good editing. Just filmmaking, essentially. Just uh, writing a good script, having things sort of make sense. But also knowing that it's a silly film where we're dealing with a supernatural entity. Um, so there's, yeah. It's literally it's the... It's a good balance. It's literally like, how do we bring this character back that we definitively killed off in part four? I don't know, he gets struck by lightning. It never gets too campy. It's not like uh, like the even the Nightmare on Elm Streets of the time where we have had already gone into camp mode. Um, oh, yeah, Freddy with his kill puns. It was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the good thing of having a, a killer who doesn't speak. I think that it's actually a... Yes, you can project You got, you got the mystique. I think yeah. all the best uh, serial murderers are that. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Yeah, I mean, I love this film. When I was first watching all the Friday the 13th films when I was in first year of university, this was the film that stuck out to me. Because I was watching the terrible like VHS copies, which were you know muddy and like 20 years old at, the, at that time. Kind of almost the way you should 
be introduced to these movies in yeah. a way. Yeah, I don't know. This pristine Blu-ray, this Blu-ray looks amazing. Good. Yeah, it yeah. does look good. Yeah. By the way, this is the Scream Factory box set, which has got parts 1 through 12, including Freddy vs. Jason and the remake. Um, yeah, I mean, we, this was, we were of an age where we would have seen these movies on VHS at a sleepover. Yeah. I didn't, though, because I was somebody, moving around Somebody's, yeah, you know, charitable parent or older sibling would, you know. Would be like, ah, it's fine. It's fine. Let the boys watch it. Yeah. Nah. We, we never, we did the Nightmare series when we were boys. Yeah, was yeah I find you're either a night. I didn't watch the Jason movies as a kid, mm-hmm. I, but I did watch some Freddy Krueger movies. Well, Freddy Krueger was pop culture, but like I would argue that this film, this the films, the Friday the 13th series is better than the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street series because there are some total, utter bad Nightmare on Elm Street Oh, films. for sure, for sure. Part five, part six. I did just rewatch uh, The Dream Warriors, and I, I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But uh, it's it's more campy compared to this one, which is yeah. still, like, it's fun. Yeah. Well, it's not like, uh, you know, some of them, some of these movies can mm-hmm. get kind of too mean-spirited. Uh, it doesn't have that kind of streak either. No, well, I mean, the interesting thing is that the directive that Tom McLaughlin was given from the studio was, it can be funny, but Jason can't be funny. So, like, you can't have Jason doing shtick. Even though he does do some he, funny things. He does do the he, James Bond thing. Yes, he has the James Bond thing. And, like, he holds up the machete with the arm still attached and looks at it like, oh, I guess I got this to deal with. He gets shot with paint uh, with a paintball and he looks down at it and then looks back up at the guy and just goes in for the kill. So, but, yeah, on the whole, like, this is my favorite Friday the 13th film. It's my favorite film of 1986. Eat crap, James Cameron. Or David Lynch, for that matter. <laughs> oh, don't say that. I like David no, Lynch. No, I, I do, but like you, you obviously like Jason Lives Better than Blue Velvet. Oh, that is a hard one. Yeah, I love Blue Velvet though, but yes. but we, I mean, we all love Blue Velvet. But the thing is, like, this is a movie I go back to repeatedly. Like, even when I'm not re- redoing the whole series, and I have to say, like, the 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 mini trilogy of parts four, five, and six is just they kind of are fun together because, like, part four is like a pure slasher. Part five is like what is going on. And then part six is like the nice like we're it's like a, we're gonna hit a home run with this movie. And they did. Yeah, they did. A tight eighty three minutes. Not yeah, I know. It's just like nothing wrong with that. In and out, and like you feel like you got a full meal out of it too. Oh, like yeah. you don't feel like like oh like what's going on? Like nothing's confusing. Everything's laid out perfectly. The performances are really good. Everyone is charming in this film. Even the the sheriff who's supposed to be like the the funny like you feel his actual legit concern for his daughter and. Of course, if someone burst into into my office saying like, "I brought this guy back to life from the dead, and he's gonna kill everyone!" Oh my god! Oh, you gotta come with me to the graveyard, and you see how I dug it up. It's like, wait, you dug up a, a grave? Yeah, I totally did it, and he's back from the dead. Ah. Uh, like, yeah, you'd be like, dude, get in the jail cell. It's, it's funny. There's no post credit stinger of the deputy still in the jail cell. It's like, hello, everybody's dead. Nobody's coming to check on yeah. him. Well, another thing I appreciated about this Friday Thirteenth installment is that. All the other installments over rely on like the kill, kill, kill uh, score. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas this uses it very sparingly. Yeah, it's again. I think it just comes down to Tom McLaughlin not being like a devotee of the entire series. Exactly. Before he got hired to do this, he had he'd only seen part one. He didn't see two, three, four, and five. And he did say like there is part five is very mean spirited. Um, yeah, four yeah. has some mean spiritedness to it as well. But By the I, way, but I, but it also was a lot of fun, yeah. R.I.P. Ted White, the Jason from Part 4, oh. who hated being Jason. Oh, damn. But he liked it when he started getting convention appearances and getting paid to do like for autographs. So he's a fair-weather Jason. But I, I argue C.J. Graham is, is a much better Jason. 
Um, so yeah, I love this movie. Uh, it's great. It's a great Halloween movie as well. Like most of the Friday Thirteenth films feel like summer, but this one feels like fall. Yeah, because they're chilly. They're, yeah, I mean, it, there's it's summer camp, but it's got to be like yeah. late September or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or like early April or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very comfy cardigans are being worn in this movie. Yeah, it's it's got it's a good fall vibes, good Halloweeny vibes, um, and yeah, I just dig it. So that's been Death by Video. Not sure when we'll be back with another episode, but we will be back sooner than later. Uh, and we will be doing some Christmas stuff in, in December uh, because a long, out-of-print British uh, sla- Christmas slasher film, the the final piece of the uh, horror oh, I think Christmas I know this horror one. thing, uh, Don't Open Till Christmas is getting oh, released okay. tomorrow. What, I was thinking. what were you thinking of? Uh, I can't remember it. Okay. Ernest Saves Christmas. We could do Ernest Saves Christmas. I like that movie a lot. We, we could do the PG-13 uh, Black Christmas. There's only one Black Christmas. As much as That's I... The 1974 one. Yeah. Black Xmas is weird and gnarly. I haven't seen the, the new Black, Black Christmas. I kind of feel haven't like either, I should. Yeah. I don't want to judge it. You know what? The it. first remake soured it so much. You know, I think I hated that movie more than either of you. Don't shoot a Black Christmas remake in New Zealand. Shoot it in Canada in the winter when everyone's cold. Yeah. I want to see the breath. I want people, I want the actors to be like, why did I do this movie? You know, you need, and you need people of the cal- caliber of, you know, Olivia Hussey and Kier Dulay. And Margot Kidder. Of oh, course. yeah. Margot Kidder and Andrea Martin. Yes. And Lynn, what was her name? Lynn something. Whoever played the alcoholic. Uh, oh, she was a, yeah, the alcoholic den mother. Den mother, yeah. All right. We were talking a lot about Christmas movies and it's October. And we say no to Christmas unless it's December. Yeah, like we could maybe squeeze in some um, U.S. Thanksgiving stuff uh, before then. Blood Rage? Yeah. All right, cool. Blood Rage is the next episode. Also, we can we can extend Halloween into November. Who cares? Yeah. We, we make our own rules around here. Yeah, this is Death by Video. Gosh darn it. <laughs> All right, so for Death by Video. I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And I'm still Graham saying thank you so much for joining us. Keep watching amazing movies. Good night. Yo, with your baby. Your park alone.